Wendell's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Right. Play, Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Let's go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Konnichiwa, my brothers and sisters. Wassalam alaikum. Shalom. Namaste. What's happening? What's going on? Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo y Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. Bonjour, bonsoir. Monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. I hope everybody is being safe. I hope everybody is enjoying the holidays. I hope everybody is doing what they need to do, especially around this time to make this place, to make this world, to make this community, to make your block, to make your neighborhood the best it can be moving forward. The end of 2020 is upon us less than a week, no, less than what, a week and a half, two weeks or something like that. 2020, one of the worst years in U.S. history, in world history over the past 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years, wherever you're living in the world, will soon be over. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Muhammad. Thank you, whatever thing you say thank you to. It's almost over. Not saying that all of a sudden, uh, January January 1st, that everything is going to be like, oh yeah, roses and beautiful and wonderful and everything is going to come up roses and that type of stuff. But man, some hope that we can get back to some type of normalcy as we uh, move forward to the end 
of 2020 and heading toward 2021. I want to say thank you very much. I want to give a special dedication for those listening to this podcast. I've been doing this strong now for about a year. I guess you can say with Wendell's World of Sports, this has really been going on two years. For the first, I don't know, eight to ten months or something like that, all I did is record and publish. I really didn't do anything in terms of reaching out because I'll be there. I really didn't do anything like that. I just wanted to see what I could do just to get this podcasting thing down, making the transition from broadcast radio was on the beach as far as broadcasting, um, sports talk radio, that type of thing, making that transition was on the beach for a while, substitute teaching and doing some other things. So I decided when I wanted to get back into broadcasting, I didn't want to deal with program directors. I didn't want to deal with the format. I didn't want to be pigeon told. I didn't want to be told what I could and couldn't talk about and I couldn't I didn't want to be dealing with what I could say and what I couldn't say and my thoughts and feelings and all those type of things. So when I decided to basically go rogue and basically go independent and start this podcast, I wanted to, before I jump full force into the water, into the lake of podcasting, I wanted to dip my toe into it a little bit. So for the first 40, 50, 60 episodes that I did, it was just mainly me doing something that I absolutely love to do, which is to talk into a microphone and give my thoughts and opinions about what's going on in the world of sports. Publish it on a podcasting host, and if people listen to it, great. If you didn't, no big deal. As I mentioned before, this was almost like this was almost like uh, sports being played in front of nobody at an arena or a stadium. The only difference was mine with the podcast. At least when you're talking about these sports being played in front of nobody, you still had the cameras, you still had the games being shown on television or wherever else that you can take a look at your uh, sporting events. When I was doing my podcast, the first, I would say, 8 to 12 months, I was doing it basically for an audience of one, which is me. So moving forward now with my podcast, uh, I'm now starting to venture out more and more, bringing my podcast to those who uh, want to listen. And uh, for those who have, I thank you very much. This podcast is only going to get better. I'm only going to get better at it. The podcast, Wendell's World of Sports, is going to continue to grow. I think this is one of the most entertaining, unique, thought-provoking, provocative uh, sports talk podcasts that you can find. And thanks to my podcasting host site, which is uh, Captivist.com, it's just going to keep growing and it's just going to keep getting bigger. So for all those, I want to say thank you very much. Special dedication for those listening in Las Vegas, Nevada, and Ashburn, Virginia, and Hackensack, New Jersey, and Black Atlanta, Georgia, and Richardson, Texas, and Troy, New York, and Moore Park, and San Francisco, California. God bless. Special dedication. Thank you very much. Even those in British Columbia, Burn Bay, and Vancouver. I want to say thank you very much. Special dedication going up for them. Paris, France. Bonjour. Thank you very much. I am much appreciated. Talking about, um, you know, speaking about people listening to me in South Africa, the capital territory of Delhi, uh, you know, New South Wales, Queensland. I just want to say thank you very much. Special dedication for those listening. I really, really do appreciate it. Nepal, Saudi Arabia, Poland, the Netherlands, Sri Lanka, uh, Thailand. Thank you very much. I very, very, very much appreciate it. Brazil, Iraq. Thank you very much. That's one of the reasons why I always say when I come on my podcast, that's why I always say, you know, bonjour, bonsoir, que pasa, namaste. Um, trying to learn all of the hellos, how you doing, what's up, as I can throughout the uh, world. So it's just my way of saying thank you very much. My way of saying, of showing my gratitude in terms of the folks listening to my podcast. And it's only going to grow, grow, grow. Download, subscribe, review, wherever 
you listen to podcast Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The holiday version of Wendell's World of Sports. Of course, they're still going to be talking about what's happening in the world of sports. Going to be going over the NFL. There's some boxing that's been happening over the last two weeks. Some big news possibly in the heavyweight division with Anthony Joshua winning his fight and see who's going to, who he's going to be fighting next and the week before that, you had Errol Spence beating up on uh, Danny Garcia. And then this past weekend, Canelo Alvarez showing the world that he is, without a doubt, the number one pound-for-pound pound boxer in the world and the dominating performance that he had watching the contest on the zone. Uh, Triple G fighting the day before. So boxing is in a good place. Boxing is moving forward for boxing to get to the place where they need to be. Some of these fights that the boxing public want to happen, which the public... In terms of the boxing public, the fights that they want to happen would then seep over to the regular sports fans. Speaking about a matchup between Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua. Speaking about, I don't know, people talking about the third fight between Triple G and Canelo. I think that Canelo, Canelo would blow him out. But, you know, there's some options for Canelo. The fight that would be very tasty in terms of whetting the appetite of the uh, sports fans for them to watch. Speaking about, of course, Errol Spence needing to get with Bud Crawford and seeing what those guys can do about uh, putting together a fight. So boxing has some avenues to elevate the sport much, much greater than it already has. You have Shakur Stevenson. You have some other Tamafila Lopez. You have some Ryan Garcia is going to be fighting on Friday. You have some really good fighters out there in boxing, but they need to get their act together and trying to see what they can do to maximize the potential to reach a greater audience than what they're doing. Bob Arum and, those guys need to uh, figure out what they need to do to uh, get these things put in place, get the wheels a-turning so we can have boxing become even more of an importance around the world. Because, you know, in each sport, in each country that, uh, you know, you have the main sporting events, you have football, you have in the uh, states here, in the racist states, and the selfish states, and the ignorant states of America, you have Football, F-O-O-T-B-A-L-L being the number one sport you have. In some countries, you have baseball being the number one sport. In some countries, basketball is really huge. In India, in that region of the country, cricket is by far the most popular sport. So, you know, boxing is one of these sports that can transcend all cultures in all countries across the globe. And this, what they just need to do is they just need to go ahead and capitalize on that. And it starts with the fighters, and then it goes down to the promoters, and let's see what we can get it done. So, yes, I will be speaking some boxing on this podcast, on the holiday podcast of Wendell's World of Sports. Once again, the NFL weekend, there's some games that I want to get into. The Kansas City defending champions, their performance against the New Orleans Saints. I want to get into what's wrong with the Pittsburgh Steelers losing their third straight game to the Cincinnati Bengals, the New York Jets doing something only the New York Jets can do, blowing away an opportunity to revitalize their franchise, even though, even though history shows that just because the Jets might lose the opportunity to draft number one, that automatically doesn't mean that they are going to be the New York Jets as we know and love. Just because you have the number one pick, and just because there's a quarterback that's projected to be the number one pick in the draft, that doesn't automatically mean that that quarterback is going to be a franchise winner or a franchise player, an NFL MVP, a Super Bowl champion, or a future Hall of Famer. So I'll get into all of that also. And of course, 
Oh, man, my Georgetown Hoyas. Yes, 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 yes. You got some big news surrounding them. Recruiting news. Didn't think it was going to happen. Didn't think it was going to happen. But thank you, Jesus. Let's just put it this way. The Hoyas record right now is 3-4 and four overall, 1-2 and two in the Big East after they lost to St. John's this past Sunday. I don't give a flying flip if Georgetown goes 3-22. and 22. I don't care for the rest of the season if Georgetown loses every game by 45 points. Don't care, don't care, don't care. Do not care. The future is looking bright. Brighter than the sun rising upon the Himalayas somewhere in the whatever. The future for Georgetown is looking bright. And I'll tell you why at the end of my podcast. The Christmas edition podcast of Wendell's World of Sports with your truly Wendell Wallace. So again, special dedication for all those who are listening and continue to listen. All right, let's get into this, man. The NFL weekend. Week 15, game of the week. The Kansas City defending champions. Victors over the New Orleans Saints, 32-29. Patrick Mahomes went 26 of 47 for 254 yards, three touchdowns. Then the uh, Kansas City team extended their winning streak to nine games with the victory on Sunday. And the victory also kept Kansas City at the favorites to capture the AFC's number one playoff uh, spot. And that would mean a bye in the first round of the playoffs. They play the Falcons this upcoming Sunday. And then they play the LA Chargers, the final two games of the season. That's the schedule for the defending champions and you know you don't know well let me tell you then since you don't know you know the Kansas City team is known for his offense I mean you've got a generational potentially all-time great quarterback in Patrick Mahomes you got a guy in Andy Reid who's known for his offense Eric Bieniemy is going to make an awesome NFL head coach and he's a guy who really schemes a great game plan for Kansas City to run and the weapons that they have so when we're speaking, especially in today's day and age, with the way that they play football in not just college, but also the NFL, it's the offense a lot of time who not only brings in the butts to the seats and the eyeballs to the TV sets, but they're also the main reason why the teams win in today's day and age in football. The three yards and the cloud of dusk, and now they play football back in the 70s and 60s. That's not happening anymore with the rule changes to really open up the game Four points to be scored. Quarterbacks now are at a premium. Well, wide receivers now are at a premium. Slot receivers, tight ends who can do more than just block are at a premium. So with Kansas City, when you're speaking about the offensive weapons that they have at their disposal, not only when you have someone who I think along with Aaron Rodgers is lapping the field in terms of how good he is as a quarterback and Patrick Mahomes, how efficient and how magnificent he is as a quarterback, the ability for this guy, even at the young age of, what, 24, 25, 26, somewhere around that age range, with the lack of experience that he's had as a starting quarterback in the NFL for Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy to give him such responsibility for the success of the Kansas City Chiefs. I mentioned multiple times during the season when Kansas City, when many other teams would run the football, say, with their four or five minutes late, in the uh, fourth quarter, and it might be a two-possession game or a one-possession game. How many teams out there, maybe outside of a handful, would put their trust in the quarterback instead of going ahead and running the ball or trying to work time that way and really not put themselves in a disadvantaged position by having a quarterback 
uh, throw an incomplete pass or something like that. There's only a handful of quarterbacks where, say for instance, with two minutes and 34 seconds on the second down with the other team having two timeouts, where a quarterback would have the responsibility or the coach, the organization would give that responsibility to the quarterback to say, we ain't going to hand off. We think it's better. We think our chances of going ahead and getting a first down or winning this game or putting the other team's defense in a bad position, I think it's better instead of milking the clock and playing to try to win that way with the prevent offense, shall you say, just hand the ball off and hope that you get a first down this way. You have a handful of quarterbacks who are in charge of the responsibility of saying, no, on second and eight, second and seven, third and six, with uh, under three minutes to go, under two 50 to go, I mean, depending upon those type of situations, we're going to have you throw the ball. Drew Brees is one guy who is put in that situation to say we're betting, we're better off having Drew Brees make the decision throwing the ball than we are just handing it off to Alvin Kamara and hoping that he's going to pick up seven or eight yards for the first down. Tom Brady is another guy with that responsibility. Ben Roethlisberger still is the guy with that type of responsibility. Aaron Rodgers is a guy with that responsibility. Russell Wilson is a guy with that responsibility. But for the most part, it's really, when you take a look at that, the quarterbacks who are in charge, who have that ability to do that, are quarterbacks who have been in the league 10 plus years. If you take a look at Tom Brady going on now playing two decades and you take a look at Drew Brees and the remarkable accomplishments that he's had and the longevity of his career. You're speaking about mainly just out of necessity, someone like a Russell Wilson or a Ben Roethlisberger who doesn't have that running back who can go ahead and get those yardage. They're almost by default going to have to be put in that situation where they're going to have to be throwing the ball and making the right decision. And because of their excellence, because of their intelligence, because of their past history of getting the job done in that regard they're able to do that but Patrick Mahomes when you speak about the quarterbacks of his experience maybe with the exception of Deshaun Watson he's given the same responsibility as those quarterbacks but third and four with a minute 45 left to go but the other team having two timeouts now we're not going to run the ball throw it Patrick Mahomes throw it so the reason why I, I brought that up is because, again, when you speak about Kansas City and you speak about their success and you speak about the glamour and those who might not follow the sport closely, those who might not follow the team closely, I mean, you know Patrick Mahomes. You know that Jake from State Farm doesn't give the Patrick Price or the Patrick Power or whatever that, that chump does. It's for everybody. So Patrick Mahomes is that guy who's going to be the guy who's going to get most of the credit when things go well. But on Sunday, this past Sunday against the New Orleans Saints, no, 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 no. Patrick was Patrick was uh, important, no doubt about it. But the MVP, the key, the game ball to that victory over the Saints, it wasn't their, it wasn't the defending champions' offense. It was their defense, in the way that they took apart and dismantled and for the most part muted one of the greater offenses in the league. Now, one, that might be struggling just a bit because Drew Brees returning from 15 broken ribs and Michael Thomas, the wide receiver, being placed on IR. He didn't play Alvin Kamara. It's a little bit banged up. There's some injuries along the offensive line of the New Orleans Saints that needs attention. But, but yet and still, we're still talking about one of the more complete teams in the NFL and a team that without question, could be facing the 
uh, Kansas City team in the Super Bowl this upcoming this upcoming playoff if both the defending champions and the New Orleans Saints make it to the Super Bowl. But in that game on the road against the Saints, Kansas City limited Drew Brees to 234 yards and three touchdowns on only on 15 of 34 attempts. Now the three TDs, hey, that's just Drew Brees being Drew Brees. But the fact that he completed less than 50% of his passes, if you take a look at the yards per attempt, you're averaging over under 10 yards per pass. He completed fewer than half of his passes and was intercepted for just the fourth time this season. I mean, he missed his first six passes and only had three completions in the first two quarters. We're speaking about Drew Brees here. Again, understood. There's some rust. Understood. He's not 100% of the crack ribs. Understood all that. But when you're the Kansas City defense and you can limit Drew Brees to 5 of 16 passing for 87 yards and an interception and no touchdowns in the first half, you're doing something. And when you take a look at the totality, even though New Orleans went ahead and scored 29 points total, when you take a look, when the devil's in the details, when you peel back that layer, when you peel back that onion of uh, what's happening, on offense, New Orleans only gained 285 total yards on 14 drives and with 2 of 12 on 3rd and 4th downs. That's defense. That's defense, man. And gal, that's defense. They rushed for 60 yards on 17 attempts. Alvin Kamara had 11 rushing attempts for 50-something yards. They held the ball for less than 19 minutes. I mean, that's something where defenses are going to be winning. And they're not, they weren't playing an inept offensive team in the New Orleans Saints. They punted, speaking of the Saints, they punted on five of their first seven possessions, offensive possessions, and they averaged 4.4 yards per play through the first two quarters. You, you present that type of defensive performance with Patrick Mahomes blended in, mixed in with Patrick Mahomes and that Kansas City offense, who's going to beat that team? If the defense is going to play that well for Kansas City, you tell me. Who in the NFL is going to beat that team? Now, you can sit there and say, uh, Wendell, you know that it was 32-29, right? I mean, you knew that it was closer than expected. Yeah, but again, take a look at the the New Orleans Saints team and take a look at how strong their defense is on a consistent basis. Take a look at how strong their front four is when you're speaking about the New Orleans Saints. And you can make the argument for the Indianapolis Colts. You can make the argument for the Los Angeles Rams. You can make the argument for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I would still say that right there near the top, at the top, as far as being able to put pressure on the quarterback with just four down linemen, I think the cream of the crop, the fruit of the loom, that team is the New Orleans Saints in terms of their defensive line. So, again, the fact that Mahomes put up 32 points and they won a very ugly football game. And when the weather turns frightful and the weather ain't so delightful and teams come into Kansas City to play, Kansas City is showing you, look, man, we can win a track meet. We can win a sloppy game. We can go ahead and do high-tech offense. We can go ahead and do slugging, punching your mouth. You punch me in my mouth. We can do it any way you want to do it. And we'll still go ahead and we'll still be better than you. Because if our defense is going to play like that, there ain't no defense right now in the league that's going to be able to hold the Kansas City offense to any type of manageable type of points. This, this is this is a new animal that we're looking at that's been around for a few years with uh, Patrick Mahomes and what he's doing and with the coaching acumen of Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy. But Saints were going to test the toughness of Kansas City. Pretty boys 
Oh, you got Patrick Mahomes. Oh, you got the speedster Tyreek Hill. Oh, okay. All right. You're going to be going down to our place. The Saints were going to try to do the same thing that they did back in 2000. When did they win that Super Bowl? Whenever they beat the Indianapolis Colts in the Super Bowl, the NFC Championship game against the Minnesota Vikings when Brett Favre was the quarterback, the one year, the one great season that Brett Favre had for that team. You remember that game? Do you remember how much Greg Williamson, Greg Williams was the coach, the defensive coordinator for that uh, Saints defense, by the way? But do you remember how much they beat up on Brett Favre? Do you remember how quote unquote chippy that game was and the physicality of that game and some of the borderline cheap shots? They were going to make it, they were going to turn that game into a street fight. And what happened? The consistent hitting and beating up of the Vikings called Brett Favre. When all he needed to do was be smart and be protective of the football, what did he do? He threw an interception. The Saints went to uh, go down and win the uh, NFC Championship. They were going to do the same. They had the same blueprint. They pulled out that same game plan and applied it to this game against the defending champions of Kansas City. They were going to test the metal, the fiber, the moral fiber of Kansas City. And Kansas City, again, and winning that game, and not just winning that game, being able to, to inflict just as much damage, just as much of a beatdown, just as much as physicality to the Saints as the Saints did to Kansas City showed the other teams, maybe if you're the Buffalo Bills, maybe if you're the Tennessee Titans and the AFC, that, oh, okay, well, you know, that game plan, we thought that might have a chance, but we see right now that ain't the end-all, be-all to try to beat the uh, to beat this Kansas City team. Now, I don't suggest that you go ahead and say, well, then screw it. Let's see what we can do to try to outscore them. I don't think they're going to be able to do that ever. Do that either. You need some type of balance, but you're not going to be able to punk the Kansas City football team. You're not going to be able to punk the Honey Bear, Tyron Matthew. You're not going to be able to punk Tyreek Hill. You're not going to be able to punk uh, Travis Kelsey. You're not going to be able to punk, well, you know, um, uh, the running back is now out for a little bit with a high ankle sprain, but uh, but yet and still, I mean, I, Kansas City showed what his medal was all about. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. If you if you take a look at the game, when you're taking a look at evidence for what I'm talking about in terms that Kansas City showed his versatility, especially on all on offense. I read you the numbers in terms of their defense and how well they did against a really good offense with the New Orleans Saints. But then again, you take a look at the def- uh, the offensive play and you see the balance that they had. 47 times they passed the ball, 41 times they rushed the ball. They rushed for 179 yards. Edward Hilaire ran for 79 yards. Uh, Le'Veon Bell ran for 62 yards. Le'Veon is going to be needed now a little bit more down the stretch. If the defending champions go ahead and win and for the last week of the season, they don't need to go ahead and play because they've already wrapped up the number one seed. Then maybe that time period between wrapping up the division and then getting their first playoff game, maybe Edwards Hilaire will be ready to play. But yet and still, if he's not, Le'Veon Bell is going to still need have to have the ability to shake off that rust and go ahead and get ready for the playoffs. But they. As a team, Kansas City rushed for almost 180 yards, 179. There were nine of 18. On third and fourth down, they controlled the ball for over 40 minutes on just 13 drives. Just shows you that, hey, okay, Kansas City is not going to, as, as potent, as powerful as their offense is, Kansas City isn't going to score 40 points every single game. 
especially if maybe you speak about teams like Tennessee and others who with a running game is going to try to limit the number of possessions and limit the amount of opportunities that Kansas City has to be explosive on offense. But it showed that, you know what, hey, the Saints forced Kansas City to punt on five of his first uh, seven, half, uh, seven first half possessions. That's okay. That's cool. According to next-gen stats against the Saints, Mahomes went 7 of 21 for 77 yards and one touchdown in the first half while being pressured 13 times and suffering three sacks. Okay, that's fine. We're going to keep coming. We're going to keep coming. He completed just two of 10 passes, Mahomes, when pressured without the states consistently blitzing. All right, that's fine. And guess what? We're still going to keep coming. We're still going to be in the ballgame. We still aren't going to be scared. We're still not going to change what we need to do. And again, I mentioned the force. I mentioned the eliteness of the New Orleans front four. Pittsburgh, right up there. Indianapolis, right up there. How many of those teams are going to be able to consistently put pressure on Patrick Holmes for him to have those type of stats? But Holmes was in the first half holding the ball on, holding the ball a little bit too long. But yet and still, the Saints front four, they did a great job. So you know, you know the explosion sooner or later is going to come 99 times out of 100. So <clears throat> for instance, in this game, after being down 15 to 14 in the third quarter, the uh, defending champion said, okay, we're fine. We're cool. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and get this, this, this victory. Let's go ahead and do what we need to do. So after that, after going down 15 to 14, Kansas City's next three possessions, touchdown, they punt it, and then they went on a 10-play scoring drive, capped off with a 12-yard touchdown uh, carry from Le'Veon Bell. That made the score 29-14 early in the fourth quarter. Ball game! Ball game! So, hey, Kansas City has now faced five top five, have faced a top five defense on nine different occasions with Mahomes at their starter. In those games, they're undefeated, and they're averaging 29 points. How are you going to beat this team? Where are you going to beat this team? What are you going to do to beat this team? If Kansas City is at 75%, if Kansas City is at 70%, how are you going to beat this team? If Mahomes is having a B game, how are you going to beat this team? If the defense is going to play like that, how in the world are you going to beat this team? Beat this team? The Kansas City defending champions. Yeah, we started off early with, you know what? Kansas City's going to be the number two spot because Pittsburgh's undefeated. This is through the first 11 games of the season. And, you know, you can't put somebody as far as the power rankings is concerned. You can't put Kansas City over Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh is undefeated. Their defense is awesome. And Roethlisberger is having a renaissance after missing the, almost all of last season with the elbow injury and the wide receivers. And this is awesome. And this is great. Never believe that hype. Never believe that nonsense. Never believe that bullshit. It was always a situation where Kansas City, I don't give a damn, was always going to be the best team in the league. So, And so far this season, through 15 weeks of the uh, NFL schedule, nothing had changed my mind on that. You can talk about any other team that you want to. You can't talk about Pittsburgh right now because they lost. And really, there's no team, especially now with New Orleans losing two games in a row, you can't speak about them in terms of a team that's hot or a team that's uh, playing really good football for the past couple of weeks on a consistent basis. The only team that's been doing that, the only team that deserves to have that that shine, that spotlight shown on them, is the team that is still the team to beat in the NFL. I'm speaking about 
that Kansas City defending champions. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, the legendary, the great, the all-timer, my hero, the great, the one and only Otis Redding, Merry Christmas, baby, surely treat you nice, Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, speaking about what's happening in the world of sports, as I'm recording this podcast on a Tuesday morning, I am excited about the NBA Regular season starting. Didn't really have enough time to really get into uh, what I wanted to talk about because this weekend you had to deal with the bottom. I had to deal like, oh my goodness, I had to deal with this son of a bitch. No, but uh, the boxing was on. that took precedent. The college football playoffs and then the conference championships that I wanted to take uh, wanted to take a look at and talk about. And of course the NFL, which takes precedent over everything, especially during this time of the season. But uh, don't worry about it, man. You know, later on today, we've got the return of the KD, or KD playing his old team, the Golden State Warriors, a team which he was part of two championships, looking to see how well he's back from the ruptured Achilles. He's had a long time, about a year and a half, basically, to get himself ready to play, and Kyrie Irving is now uh, rip-roaring, ready to go, since he's now decided to talk to the media, media I guess for now. We'll see what happens. The coaching debut of not only Steve Smith, but also Amari Stoudemire is on that coaching staff, former Phoenix Suns teammate. So that'll be a good game to watch. Interesting to see James Wiesman, the number two pick for the Warriors out of Memphis, who only played a handful of games because of NCAA situations and ongoings, decided that he was going to uh, bolt the season, last uh, season from Memphis into uh, work and get ready for the NBA draft. Big man, I don't think, um, Draymond Green is not playing, right? Yeah, Draymond Green is going to be out this game, but interested to see Steph Curry, to see how he's going to come back. The guy only played a handful of games last uh, season after breaking his hand or his finger or his wrist or something like that, but uh, he missed the majority of the season, so he's had an extended vacation. And when you're speaking about the Golden State Warriors, who basically played an extra season and a half during that run that they had where they were winning those championships, in some instances, if you're speaking about a Steph Curry, if you're speaking about a, Green, a Draymond Green, the fact that they really didn't play that much basketball last season and they had a nine-month layoff for the most part because they weren't one of the teams that were asked to return to participate in the bubble because of their record, because they didn't have a chance to make the playoffs. It gave Steph not only an extended vacation in terms of uh, healing his injury, but also 
rebuilding and regenerating after the playoff run that they had. Don't think I don't. It's, it's seventy-two games. If the Warriors are going to make the playoffs, especially now with Clay being out for the year with that ruptured Achilles, I mean, you know, doggone it, that sucks. It's going to be interesting. It'll be interesting. Are they going to be able to go with the team that they have currently right now, or if Wiesman starts balling, are they going to be try? Are they going to try to use him as a trade chip to get themselves a, a player who can make them uh, give them a better chance now? to uh play for the uh play for the championship because you know Weisman might be great but it's going to take 3 to 4 to 5 years for him to to do that if he's going to reach that expectation if he's going to reach that potential and in that time what's going to be what's going to become of Steph and Clay and Draymond and, and that core that foundation that won you all those championships that made you such uh, a brilliant team during that time so are we going to forfeit the last remaining prime years of Steph with this guy Wiesman and some of the players that they have around them. They're in that they're in that tricky situation, man. I mean, they're not good enough to vie for a championship, but they're not bad enough to bottom out either. They were pretty lucky to get the draft pick that they did. They would have been a lot happier if they would have gotten that draft pick in the upcoming 2021 NBA draft rather than the 2020 NBA draft, but it's a it's a situation. They're, they're they're starting to reach the Atlanta Hawksville, what they were for a long time. Good enough to make the playoff as a sixth, seventh, or eighth seed, but never good enough to win themselves a championship or be real championship contenders. And they weren't bad enough to uh, bottom out so they can start the rebuilding process by obtaining high draft picks and, and building that way. Golden State, not the free agent destination of an LA or a Miami or such something like that but with the culture that they have and the ownership that they have and it's still the Bay Area we're still speaking about the San Francisco Bay Area it should be an attractive it should be an attractive market for high quality free agents franchise changing free agents but yet and still Golden State in the near future here speaking about this year going to become a it's going to be kind of an up and down season in terms of uh what they're what exactly what direction they're going to be going wendell's world of sports the podcast i'm your host wendell wallace so glad that you could be with us so those are some of the things that i'll be talking about on my next podcast don't know if i'm going to be able to put one out before christmas but if i don't get it out by at least the 25th i will definitely get one out before today for the 22nd i will definitely get one out before the 28th so Around that, uh, around that, that, that game time, around that, 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 that space, that area, which will give you enough time to digest what I'm putting down right now. I don't want to just, you know, I don't want to, be, I don't want myself to be thrown down your throats. Take your time with my podcast. It's a smorgasbord. You know, my podcast is like a buffet. You can have your college football talk. You can have your white people are no good talk. <laughs> you can have your joking. You can have your NBA talk. You can have your Bobby Flay talk. You can have your I feel great about Otis Redding and Sam Cook talk. You can have your uh, NFL talk. You can have college football, college basketball, Georgetown. You know, I just give you anything. So if you want to listen to some really good NFL talk, I got it for you. If you want to listen to some really good Georgetown talk, I got it for you. If you want to listen to some good NBA talk, I got it for you. If you want to listen to some really good NBA college football talk, bingity bangity boom, I got it for you. I'm all access, baby. Um, what you need. 
I give you what you need here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay, let's uh, talk about the uh, NFL a little bit here. Talked in the first segment about the Kansas City football team playing well, the team to beat. The team for many weeks, they thought, people thought were the best team in the league because they were undefeated and everything. The Pittsburgh Steelers, you take the S-T-E-E-L out of Steelers. What do you got? A team that's 0-3 in its last three games. And, you know, losing to Washington at home, embarrassing. Losing on the road to Buffalo. I mean, okay, that happens. But losing to Cincinnati with Ryan Finley as their quarterback and playing as woeful and pathetic and lazy and sleepwalking-ish as it did in the first half, unacceptable, inexcusable, and not only you're part of the Pittsburgh Steelers organization, but as the fan base. What the hell kind of performance was that on Monday night? Monday night, Sunday night, Tuesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Friday midnight? What the hell kind of performance? Unflippin' acceptable. 27-17, the loss to Cincinnati, snapped the Steelers' 11-game winning streak against the Bengals, Bungles, Bengals, whatever you want to call them. And now... What happens is the team that many people thought were speaking about, are they going to go undefeated? Are they going to go undefeated? All of a sudden now, they're not the number one seed in the playoff in the AFC. They're not now even the number two seed. Now they're in the number three. Because that loss to Cincinnati yesterday, Monday night, puts them behind Buffalo at the number three seed in the AFC playoffs in one game ahead of Cleveland in the AFC North. So there is a real reality with games coming up against Indianapolis and then Cleveland, that the Pittsburgh Steelers not only can lose the number one spot in the playoffs in terms of seeding, they can lose the um, they can lose their grip on the AFC North and lose that division title. The first half again, embarrassing on offense. First time in twenty season, twenty season, two decades, and this includes the postseason. The Steelers went three and out on their first. Five possessions, including two fumbles that led to 10 points to the Bengals. Five possessions, three and outs. It marked the first time since week three of 2017 at the Bears that the Steelers lost two fumbles in the first quarter. The Steelers failed to gain a, a first down in the first quarter for the first time since 2018, week eight of the Cleveland Browns. I wonder what that game was all about. And the first first down Monday came with just 10 minutes left to go in the second quarter. What what exactly were you guys doing? What exactly were you guys thinking? Ben Roethlisberger was beyond horrible. That might have been, including his rookie year, that might have been his worst half of football in his NFL career. And if that's his first half, his worst first half of football in his NFL career, we can obviously say, or I can go ahead and go out on a limb and say, that was probably the worst football Ben Roethlisberger had ever played regardless of of level of competition. When he first picked up a football and started playing in the Pee Wee League, I bet you his first game wasn't as bad as he looked in the first half against the Cincinnati Bengals on Monday Night Football. Terrible. Had career lows in passing yards, 7. Yards per play, 1.4. The Steelers matched their fewest first downs, 2. And most turnovers in the half, they had more, they had more turnovers than first downs. Unheard of. But Ben Roethlisberger... And those receivers, unacceptable. And the Bengals then took those three turnovers, the two fumbles and an interception, 
The one interception, bad. Real bad. Turn them into two touchdowns and a field goal. 17-0. Thank you very much. Now, Roethlisberger rebounded a little bit and finished the game 20-38 for 170 yards with one touchdown and that just one interception in the first half. But, you know, it was it was surprising because <clears throat> many people who have been watching the Steelers play, many people who know the quarterback position and played it at a high level watching the Steelers play, has said that Roethlisberger has turned to what would, could be considered something of like an NBA point uh, NBA point guard, distributing. He, he's become that classic mochi Steve Nash type of type of point guard in terms of you know setting up the offense, throwing the pass to make the assist. He ain't I, he ain't Allen Iverson. He ain't Isaiah Thomas. He ain't he ain't Kyrie Irving. He's not looking to get his own bounce. He ain't looking to get his own shots. He ain't looking to get his own points. He's that classic NBA point guard playing NFL football, which means is that he's taking the ball, getting the ball out of his hands, short intermediate type passes to who his receivers in space and letting them get all the yak, letting them get all the yards after catches. So if a play goes for 15 yards. He's going to throw the ball five yards out in space to a receiver and Juju Smith-Schuster or Crabtree or James Washington or one of those guys is going to go ahead and get the other 10 yards. Well, against Cincinnati, he came out and he thought that he was Daryl LaMonica trying to throw deep. He came out attempting long and intermediate throws, missing receivers. And he's been doing that now for the past couple of weeks. And against the Bengals, he... Failed to complete any of his seven throws of 10-plus yards in the air in the first half. And six, six of them were broken up by inter, broke or broken up or intercepted by Bengals receivers or defenders. So, look, if, if the Steelers are going to turn this around, if the Steelers are going to get back to motion and get back to where they were, and I don't know if they can, Ben Roethlisberger is going to have to do better. He's the key of the offense and the success of the team moving forward. If Roethlisberger is going to be mediocre, then the Steelers aren't going to make it to the Super Bowl. They might not even make it to the AFC Conference Finals. I spoke about the two quarterbacks with the most responsibilities for their team. Their team success being Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray because the offense is offensive game plan are just centered around that guy, those, those those quarterbacks, and they don't have the running backs or their offensive line isn't good enough. They, they are the, those quarterbacks, speaking particularly about Wilson and Kyler Murray, those are the quarterbacks that are going to erase some of the weaknesses. So because of the brilliance of Russell Wilson, along with the game plan, same thing with Kyler Murray, you, you don't need a Nick Chubb. You don't need a Derrick Henry. Because of the brilliance and the mobility and the offensive schemes of what, they were, what they've been doing with Arizona and Seattle, you don't need to have a strong offensive line to uh, go ahead and for those guys to be really good or for that team to be really good. It's all on the quarterbacks. So you have those quarterbacks with that responsibility. Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson. You can add Deshaun Watson to that list. Another person you can add to that list is Ben Roethlisberger. Roethlisberger needs to play well. Roethlisberger is not the quarterback who can throw the ball 20 to 22 times and Pittsburgh is going to be successful. 
James Conner is not that type of running back. Benny Bernard Snell is not that type of running back. The weaponry they have at the wide receiver position almost dictates the fact that you need a quarterback, whether it be short, intermediate, or whatever, the Drew Brees type of uh, passing game. You're going to need a quarterback that's going to be able to get those get the football to those players. And if Roethlisberger is going to be as poor as he was in the first half and overall against the Bengals, then the Steelers are in trouble because they don't have anywhere else to turn. Again, no matter how great the defense is, and Pittsburgh does have a great defense, overall defense. Their secondary, fantastic. Their front four, fantastic. Despite that, you're, you're not winning football games in the NFL 13-10 anymore. If you want to compete with Kansas City, if you want to hold off Cleveland, if you want to go ahead and compete with Tennessee, if you want to go ahead and beat Indianapolis, you're, you're not beating those teams 17-14. to 14. The rules dictate where you can't do that because of, of the way the game is going right now. So you need an offense to put up anywhere between 28 and 32 points a game. And if Roethlisberger is going to be, it's going to be this poor on offense, there's nowhere else to turn. You're not going to bench the guy, of course. But you're not going to all of a sudden say, we're going to have the running game account. You're not going to turn the Pittsburgh Steelers into the Tennessee Titans. You're not going to turn the Pittsburgh Steelers into what the San Francisco 49ers were last year. They don't have that type of personnel. Defensive-wise, the Steelers stack up with last season's 49ers in terms of effectiveness. But on offense, the Steelers aren't there with that running game that the 49ers had. Nor do they have the play-calling and coaching ability from the offensive standpoint that the 49ers have with Cal Shanahan. The way he was uh, manipulating what was going on with the offense last season. And um, making Jimmy G acceptable and most certain those guys being quality running backs and getting good stuff out of them. That's not Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is get the ball to Schuster, get the ball to Washington, get the ball to Crabtree, get the ball to those guys, and let's go. And if Roethlisberger's going to do that, there ain't nobody else. What are you going to do, bring back in Mason Rudolph? Duck Devlin Hodges, who's no longer with the team? Well, you're going to go out and too late to sign Kaepernick. You wouldn't do it anyway. That would be fruitless. So you're kind of stuck now with Roethlisberger. And what does this mean for Pittsburgh moving on? Because if you've forgotten, let me remind you, Roethlisberger is coming off a season where he missed the entire year for the most part because of elbow surgery. And when you're 38 years old, that elbow, in terms of the injury, that, that can heal. But it's not going to give life. It's not going to rejuvenate. It's not going to de-age that arm. As I mentioned before with all of these guys, I mentioned it about Tom Brady. I mean, you can do all the protein shakes and sleep in a hyperbolic chamber and spend a million dollars a year on your body and chefs and, and green drinks and all those type of things. It's impossible to de-age. As you get older, you do not get faster. You do not get stronger. You do not... Uh, feel better in terms of, I feel better when I'm in my 20s. If you were a high-caliber professional athlete, Tom Brady can do everything that he wants to do. He's 43 years old. His days of feeling like he did when he was 28 are long gone. That's not happening. The physical attributes that Ben Roethlisberger had when he was 25, 28, 31, 33 years old, that's no longer there. That's not coming back. Arm strength, mobility, whatever you want to say. Hairline, whatever you want to say, is not coming. Is not coming back. 
testosterone levels, all that, not coming back. So with the Roethlisberger at 38 years old, have we seen now that, that has the decline started with uh, with Big Ben? He's already had to change up his game because of those age factors and those injury factors. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be a situation where, you know, this is going to be a Steelers offense moving in transition to another way to play the game while still maintaining the place of where they're still contenders for a Super Bowl championship. But the Steelers haven't scored 20 points since November. And this was the first time a Roethlisberger-led team failed to score 20 points four games in a row since his rookie season, where they were relying on defense and Jerome Bettis, when the NFL was a completely different game than it is right now. So I'm starting to see some similarities between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the New Orleans Saints these last couple of games. Elite teams, the majority of the season with Super Bowl caliber defenses, but questions now on how effective those offenses are going to be, especially with the quarterback position. How far can Drew Brees, how far can Ben Roethlisberger take these guys? 41-year-olds with broken ribs don't heal quickly. The Drew Brees we saw in week two, three, four, that Drew Brees is not coming back this season. The Ben Roethlisberger that we saw weeks one through eight and nine is not coming back this season. So what's going to be happening? So what's going to be going on? So what adjustments are both the Saints and the Steelers going to have to make? And look, again, the final two games, we'll see. We'll see. Pittsburgh's final two games are against Indy and Cleveland, and the Jets against the Rams showed us that prognostications on, oh yeah, this is definitely going to happen, or this team is going to win without question, without doubt, without conversation, without discussion, is pointless, and not uh, something that I wouldn't do, but maybe this win, maybe a win against Indy, who knows, and who knows what's going to be happening with Cleveland, but they haven't looked right since, the Steelers have not looked right since Thanksgiving, when they were supposed to play Baltimore in prime time. That game was postponed because of the COVID outbreak among the Ravens team and organization. So they moved the game with Baltimore from Thanksgiving night to the middle of the afternoon, in the middle of the week, in the middle of a pandemic. Thank you very much. They won an ugly 19-14 game against an undermanned team from Baltimore. Then they went ahead and they coughed up a lead against Washington, a game that they should have won. They lost convincingly to Buffalo, and then they lost to what Cincinnati. Pretty convincingly. I mean, you could talk about that third down should have been pass interference call. I'm, I'm not going there. They should have been in that situation to begin with. If they would have played a halfway decent first half, they would have won that game. Or they would have been in a position to where they wouldn't have needed that call to bail them out. Unacceptable, inexcusable performance. And you're not going to shoo away or you're not you're not going to minimize or mitigate the first half by saying we got robbed because of a... Uh, Non-pass interference call. Not happening. Not going there. So, it'll 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 be interesting. It'll be interesting. The Pittsburgh Steelers, they have fallen. Ben Roethlisberger has fallen. The question is, they might have fallen with their age, with their injury history, with the way they've been looking the last couple of weeks. Can the Steelers get up? Santa Claus 
Sports. Now I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. A change is coming in Philadelphia. Is a change coming in Philadelphia? Carson Wentz, what's happening? What's going on? The Philadelphia Eagles fell to 4-9-1 following their 33-26 loss to the Arizona Cardinals on Sunday. DeAndre Hopkins, whew, DeAndre Hopkins had a season-high 169 yards receiving on nine catches. Called a 20-yard touchdown catch for the go-ahead score with a with 7-17 left to go in the fourth. Arizona quarterback Kyler Murray threw for a career-high 406 yards and completed 27 of the 36 passes with three touchdowns and one interception. So it's a good day for the Arizona Cardinals, 8-6, with the Minnesota Vikings losing to the, the Chicago Bears, the... Um, Cardinals are back in playoff contention, so it was a good day for the Cards. The Philadelphia Eagles, you could say it was a good day also. Yeah, they lost. And yeah, with the Giants losing and with Washington losing, it was an opportunity for Philadelphia to maybe make some inroads. But come on, man, in terms of uh, getting in a playoff position in the NFC least. But come on, y'all. We all know where the Philadelphia Eagles are going to be going this season down the toilet. They trailed 16 to nothing in the first quarter. 26 to 20 at the half. Murray at that time threw for 264 yards and two touchdowns. But Jalen Hurts was not matching him as far as passing yardage is concerned, but he had three touchdown passes and had 177 yards passing. So Philadelphia tied the score at 26 in the third quarter after Hurts ran for a seven yard touchdown. Then DeAndre Hopkins did what he did, and after a couple of possessions where they couldn't do anything, finally the Hail Mary by Hertz at the end of the game fell incomplete. Ball game, Arizona won. But speaking about the glass half-empty with the Philadelphia Eagles in their future, it was another solid start for Jalen Hurts. 24 of 44, 338 yards, three touchdown passes, no interceptions, a 102.3 passer uh, QBR. He also ran for 63 yards in the touchdown on 11 carries. Here's the most important thing. The team played hard. His teammates played hard. It seemed like they had belief. It seemed like that the most important position on the offensive side of football and the most important position in football, the quarterback position, showed some leadership. So some ability to convey the emotion of believing, passion, trying. Unity, <laughs> something that was severely lacking when Carson Wentz was at the quarterback position. I'm not saying it was completely his fault or whatever, but there's a new step. There's a new twinge. There's just a new 
just aura surrounding the Philadelphia Eagles when Jalen Hurts is the quarterback for this team. And it shows. 24 again, 24-44, 3.38, three touchdowns, no interceptions, 63 yards rushing on 11 carries. He became one of just three rookies since 1950 with 330 yards passing plus 60 yards rushing in a game with four, TV, four TDs. Hurts, Deshaun Watson, and Justin Herbert were the only three players to do that. So, you know, I, I'm wondering who's going to be taking the claim when Lincoln Riley and Nick Saban goes into recruiting homes and goes into the homes of these uh, five-star recruits of the dual-threat quarterbacks in high school. And they're talking about, you know, you can, you need to come to my school. You need to come to my school. Which one is going to say, y'all see Jalen Hurts on television? Yeah, I did that. Yeah, that's all me. That's what I'm talking about. Is Lincoln Riley going to say, hey, look, man, when Jalen Hurts was at Alabama, did he look this good? I don't think so. He lost his spot to Tua Tungavailoa. He comes to me with one year, and you see what he's doing now for the Philadelphia Eagles. You see how much I've turned his career around. If your son goes to Oklahoma and is under my tutelage, believe me, you're going to be ecstatic because we're going to have more than one year to work on turning him in, turning him into an NFL quarterback. If I can undo everything that Nick Saban did with, with Hurts and turn him into the type of quarterback that he is now in one season, just imagine what I can do taking your son three years under my system, that raw piece of clay that you're going to give me time to mold. Just how great do you think I'm going to uh, be for your son? Oh, and did I forget to mention that also I did the same thing with Baker Mayfield and... Uh, Kyler Murray, bingo! <laughs> That's going to be Lincoln Riley's pitch. While Nick Saban is going to be like, fuck that, man. Lincoln Riley had Jalen Hurts for one season. One season! Who do you think gave him that leadership? Who do you think gave him those leadership skills? Who do you think went ahead and did his uh, polished his game and did all this for him? It was me. I was the one. I was the one who built the foundation. You don't say the cake is great just because of the icing. You take the, the cake, you don't judge a cake based on only its icing, man. That's not the game-winning deal. That's not the thing that's going to save you from being chopped. That's not the thing that's going to win you anything on guys' grocery gains. No, that's not going to win you anything on the Holiday Baking Championship. That's not going to get you on the Food Channel. That's not going to have you beat Bobby Flay as your signature dish. No, I was the one Nick Saban is saying to the um, parents of this recruit. No, I was the one who molded Jalen Hurts into the player that he was. The second coming of a mix between Dak Prescott and Russell Wilson. I was that guy. So have your son come to my school because not only are you going to be winning championships, not only are you going to be setting yourself or if you are going to be staying in the Alabama area, in the Tuscaloosa, Montgomery, Alabama area, that after your football days are over, the fact that I could walk into anywhere and say, hey, hire that guy and they'll say yes sir Mr. Saban because I'm basically God in that area you need to have your son come down to my school that's what I'm talking about in terms of what Jalen Hurts is doing we're speaking about more of an impact than just the Philadelphia area we're speaking more on what Jalen Hurts is doing through two games we're speaking more than what he's having on the organization we're speaking more on what he's having on as far as an impact with the city we're speaking more on the hope and belief that he's giving Philadelphia Eagle fans and the heartache that he's giving the lovers of Carson Wentz and Carson Wentz himself this is wide-ranging you 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 and you Pay attention. Dig deeper. Open the mind. 
So, yeah, man. I mean, and here's what else Jalen Hurts is doing. Think about this. Jalen Hurts is possibly, possibly doing the same thing for Doug Peterson that Lamar Jackson did for John Harbaugh in November of 2018. What's that, you ask? Saving his job. If you remember back in week 11 against Cincinnati after their bye week, Lamar came in, got his first start in place of Joe Flacco, who was sidelined with a hip injury, led them to a 24-21 victory. After that, they finished the season 6-1, and got themselves into the playoffs where I believe they lost to the uh, then San Diego Chargers. Remember that? Remember before the bye week when Baltimore was floundering at 4-5 and and there was real talk that they might have to go in a different direction with Harbaugh? Ozzie Newsom wasn't there anymore, so the guy that hired him was no longer responsible in terms of, well, you know, I fire him, that's going to kind of be like, you know, uh, a scarlet letter on me because I was the one who brought him in. No, no, Ozzie brought him in. John did a great job, won of championships, but the time was right during that time and the discussion was there during that time that, you know what, this is a situation where if things don't turn around and Baltimore misses the playoffs, then John Harbaugh could be gone as coach. Lamar Jackson started just on a, you know, break glass in case of emergency type of situation and we saw what happened and we see now the job security that John Harbaugh has at the coach of the Baltimore Ravens. The same thing could be said for Jalen Hurts. Now, of course, the difference is the fact that Jalen Hurts is not going to be leading the Philadelphia Eagles to a playoff berth, but if he can perform well next week against the Dallas Cowboys and he can do well, you know, the following, um, this week and uh, the next week and the week after that and show some promise, and at the exit meeting with Jeffrey Lurie and Howard Roseman that Doug Peterson can go in there and say, hey, look, I got myself... I got my quarterback. I won with Carson Wentz. I won with um, Nick Foles. But now I got this guy here who I believe can be the guy moving us forward. And with Howie Roseman, when you go ahead and you draft a quarterback in the second round, and a quarterback where many people are saying, you take a look at his height, you take a look at the, the, the type of throws that he can and can't make, are you sure you want to draft this guy as your quarterback in the second round? Are you sure you want to go that route? When you need yourself a wide receiver, when you need yourself a running back, when you need yourself some offensive line help, you're sure you're going to be using a second-round pick on a quarterback? All of these things, if Hurts performs well, Peterson can go in and plead for his job. Not, I don't know about pleading, but he can argue for his job by saying, look what I've done with Jalen Hurts the last four games of the season. If you continue, if you allow me to continue this relationship, this business relationship with Hurts, then I can, you know, pretty much say that we're going to be strong contenders to win the NFC lease, which isn't saying much, but, you know, let's start walking before we start running again. So Jalen Hurts is, again, having an impact on multitudes of people, places, and things moving forward with his performances the past couple of weeks. Now, again, there's going to be some times... I don't know if it's going to be against the Cowboys, who have been playing better, especially on defense, that there's going to be some times where Hurts is going to look like the guy where it's kind of like, man, you really sure you want to do this? But what Peterson and the rest of those guys are hoping for is let's go ahead and have that, you know, the second year in games 3, 8, and 11. You know, we can kind of work on those things. But as for right now, he is the jolt of adrenaline. Adrenaline. He is the jolt of adrenaline that the... 
Baltimore, that the uh, Philadelphia Eagles have needed, giving them the same energy, belief, enthusiasm, hop in the step, hope for the future. Same thing that Jackson did when he was in Baltimore. Joe Flacco was a stale, antiquated, statuesque type of quarterback, bland personality, no flavor, no vibe, no swag, no nothing. Lamar comes in, you know, he's got that game, he's got that athleticism, he's got that swag, he's got that confidence, he's got that charisma, he's got that leadership. It clicked. I don't know Carson Wentz in terms of his leadership abilities or anything like that. I've never been around Carson Wentz. I don't know Carson Wentz, and I'm not even going to go to the stereotypical joke about saying, how much swag can someone have if they've been in North Dakota, a white boy who's been in North Dakota for four years, exactly how much swag can he have going to Philadelphia? So I'm not even going to go to that stereotypical ignorant route. But I'm, I'm just saying, it just shows, it just seems that Jalen Hurts has that, 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 that Dak Prescott type of leadership qualities that Carson Wentz and a lot of quarterbacks for that matter don't have. So that's something to build on. Philadelphia hadn't scored 20 points in the four, in four games before making the switch from Wentz to Hurts. Now they've done it in back-to-back games. Now that's too small of a sample size to say, well, boom, there we go. But boom, go to dynamite. That's something to work for. So, look, he's still a work in progress. He was sacked six times, including two late in the game. Took a safety, which was huge, giving Arizona his first two points. But, again, the way he's played the last two games, the way Wentz has played all season, he deserves to start for the rest of the season, no doubt, with the remaining two games. So, after that, regardless of how he plays, let's say that Hurts continues to play well. Well. At the same level that he's playing with right now, maybe Dallas, he goes up a little bit, and then the game, at the end, he might go down a little bit. But the medium towards goes towards the first two games that he started, right? We're give, it's, He's given hope. The Eagles played well. They went one and one. We see something there. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. What happens with the Eagles organization moving forward in terms of is Hertz going to be the starter? Is Carson Wentz going to be the backup? Is Wentz going to be able to compete for the job? Is there going to be some type of ultimatum in terms of if you still want to be coaching here, you better go ahead and commit to Jalen Hurts instead of Carson Wentz? I mean, what's going to be the plan for the Philadelphia Eagles organization moving forward concerning Carson Wentz and Jalen Hurts? It depends on the owner, Jeffrey Lauren. Depends on the GM, Howie Roseman. And it depends on Doug Peterson and Carson Wentz. And I say that it depends on Carson Wentz because if Carson Wentz takes to the idea, the, 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 the best thing for, for Philadelphia Eagles fans, the best thing for the organization is for Doug Peterson at the end of the season to say, hey, look, you know what? We're going to go into training camp, open competition for the quarterback position. I ain't promising a starting position to nobody. Are you willing to take that challenge? And we're going to start next season. This season was screwed up because of COVID and we didn't have training camp and everything was all jacked up with OTAs. So starting for the 2021 season, every position is open. Open competition. Carson, are you you for that? Are you down with that? Are you reasonable about that? Because Carson Wentz has got to know. Look, it might be not, it's not all my fault that we're as bad and it's not all my fault that I was as bad as I was, but he can't sit there in all actuality. 
I mean, when he's with his wife, I don't know if his wife gave birth to a child yet, but in his in his private moments, when there's no one around, he, he can't honestly take a look outside and just say, wow, you know, Philadelphia did me wrong. I cannot believe I'm not starting. I deserve to start. By the way I played, I deserve to be starting. He can't possibly think that. Now, I can understand, I can understand him thinking, you know what, as bad as I looked, there were reasons out of my control on why I was this bad. The offensive coordinator is a joke. The offensive line is garbage. I can't. I don't have any receivers that can get me open. I don't have a running game to take any pressure off of me. I mean, Zach Ertz is the only weapon that I have. It's a tight end position or from a skills position. So, yeah. Was I bad? Yeah. But was it completely my fault? Is it entirely my fault? No. And I hate the fact that the media, the coaches, my teammates, and everybody else feels that I'm the one to blame. I'm the reason why we have underachieved like we did this season. I'm the one that's catching all the hell. I'm the one that's catching all the shit. And it ain't fair. It ain't fucking fair. Anybody want to, you know, talk about the offensive line? Anybody want to start criticizing Doug Peterson? Anybody want to try to ask Greg Ward, can he please get open a little bit more? Can I please find a running back who can do something for me? The defense hasn't been like it was. Can Jason Peter please at least stay healthy for, I don't know, maybe half the season? That might that might do me a little bit of good. So I can see Carson Wentz coming from that standpoint in that mindset. But because of that, he might not be open for open competition. He might say, you know what, Doug, fuck you, man. I'm a starter in this league. Take a look at my resume. Take a look at what have I done. Take a look at my accomplishments. Take a look at how good I was last season when I had minimal help. You're going to tell me, try to tell me that I'm going to have to compete with some undersized second round pick from Alabama or Oklahoma, wherever the fuck that he's from or what he, what he says, went to college. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. So everything, everything deals with that. Everything is dealing with that. Now we've getting reports that Wentz wants out of Philly if Hertz is going to remain the Eagle starter. Now this is. ESPN's Adam Schefter reporting. He says that Wentz is unhappy with the current situation in Philadelphia after the team benched him. And what Schefter said, Shefty, he said that Carson Wentz is not interested in being a backup quarterback and would want to move on from the Eagles if the current situation with Jalen Hurts starting under center continues in Philadelphia. And according to other sources, Wentz is not pleased with the way events have unfolded in the organization. Basically, what I'm guessing is, yeah, that the majority of the blame is being heaped on him, where he feels like, look, you know, again, I have not been great, but uh, there's some, like, unmitigated circumstances, or there's some things that I can't control on why I have played the way that I played. So, the Eagles' options with Wentz are, you know, they're already severely limited. The dead cap hit that comes with moving on from Wentz this offseason or next offseason. He signed up with a four-year, $128 million contract or some nonsense like that contract extension. So because of that, when you have so much money that's guaranteed around $70 million, this ain't the NBA, this ain't Major League Baseball. We're dealing with a hard salary cap in the NFL. I don't, I don't know exactly what you do with them. You're not going to cut them. Cutting them is not an option. Again, the... the Eagles are already projected to be $70 million over the cap next season. And getting rid of Wentz this way would carry a dead, dead cap hit of around $59, $60 million. 
trading him. I remember the last podcast I did talking about trading Wentz and potential suitors being teams like Denver, John Elway, needing a quarterback to save his reputation after a few years of whipping on the quarterback. You have the Indianapolis Colts who should be looking for a quarterback. Philip Rivers is, what, 39, 40 years old. We don't know how much longer he has left. Even in the current state that Carson Wentz is in right now, I feel that next season he would be an upgrade over Philip Rivers, just as far as playing playing is concerned. When you speak about salary and all that kind of nonsense, it it drives to another drives it to a different conversation. But just based on playing, I would say that with a fresh start and being under the tutelage of Frank Reich, who was the offensive coordinator for the Eagles when Wentz was at his best, I would say that, um, yeah, Indianapolis should uh, go ahead. They, they're going to try to see what they can do to um, move some contracts or let go of some players. They they, they, buy, they already have a good foundation in terms of the cap space. They just need to do a couple of more things to uh, get it to the point where they could afford to go ahead and trade for Carson Wentz. And then again, what's the trade market for Carson Wentz, if you're the Eagles, how much do you think that he's worth? What type of draft pick are we talking about? A second, a third? I don't know exactly, you know, what the deal would be for that, but there's situations where you could trade Carson Wentz, but it's going to be tricky. So you're not going to cut him. Trading him is going to be difficult. If you release him, you would still have to pay a premium just to have Wentz play somewhere else. And if you do trade them, then the Eagles are going to be in the market for a backup quarterback. If this is going to be Jalen Hurts' team moving on from 2021, and you finally found somebody, maybe in the deal with Philadelphia, you package, you, you uh, see what you can do about getting uh, J- Jacoby Brissett to be that guy. But you're going to have to find a quarterback, backup quarterback for Hurts like a Cam Newton or an, an Andy Dalton or a Tyrod Taylor or a Ryan Fitzpatrick. Maybe draft yourself a late-round quarterback in the 5th, 6th, or 7th round. But it, it's it's going to put the Philadelphia Eagles in, um, in a difficult situation moving forward if Carson Wentz is hell-bent on being the football version of James Harden in terms of, I want to be traded, I don't like the situation, and this, that, and the other. Um, we'll see how it goes. Again, what the Eagles should do, and again, they have Carson Wentz signed to a contract a contract so the the boss in this scenario the one who's calling the, the shots the uh, hnic as far as this scenario is concerned is the philadelphia eagles they don't need to trade carson wins you can sit and pound on the bench all you want to but um we're not going to trade you we're definitely we're definitely not going to release you we're not going to cut you so my advice for you would be to go ahead, get yourself ready, get yourself ready to play. We we don't know exactly how well Jalen Hurts is going to progress moving forward. Injuries happen all the time in sports. And as I mentioned before, if you come back into camp rip-roaring, ready to go for the 2021 season, there's no guarantee that Jalen Hurts is going to be the starter for all 16 games. If he faltered, if they're struggling, I still have a guy waiting in the wings, chomping at the bits, who at one time in the near uh, uh, near past was an MVP candidate, was a guy who was regarded going into the season as one of the quarterbacks who could be the face of the franchise 
faces of the league moving on for the 2021, 22, 23, 24 NFL seasons. My job as a head coach and the Eagles' job as an organization is to see what they can do to rekindle that magic to uh, to restart the potential and the talent that was displayed by Carson Wentz. He wasn't in a car accident. He didn't get hit by a bus. I don't know exactly how he would lose his talent and his ability. It's more mental than I would say physical. So all of those things are going to be on the agenda for the Eagles moving off season. But sorry, Carson, you know, man up, grow up, do whatever. But I'm, if I'm the Eagles, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Get ready for open competition. It's up to you if you want to be the starter or not. But releasing you, not happening, trading you, difficult to do. So um, when OTA start, when the season's over, when we get the AOK from the league, Carson Wentz, we'll be seeing you back here with the Philadelphia Eagles. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. The holiday season edition, I hope everybody has a safe and happy holiday season. Namaste, wassalamu alaikum, konnichiwa, shalom, ke pasa, bonjour. Hope everybody's doing great, hope everybody's doing fantastic. Special dedication going for those who are listening to the program in Las Vegas, Richardson, Texas, New York City, Toronto, Canada, Brazil, Spain. Now, the reason why I'm saying Brazil, Spain, South Africa, because some of these places, I have no idea of how to pronounce them. So I don't want to be butchering up the name by saying, so I'm just going to just say, you know, Bangladesh, New Delhi, all of my brothers and sisters out there listening to the podcast. I appreciate it very, very, very much. As I continue to grow, and learn how to do the thing, these things, I'll start talking about, I don't know, man, maybe I'll try, start trying to give away something or something like that. Not like, you know, you have won a brand new car. None of that nonsense, but, uh, you know, make it worthwhile to listen to the podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and all that kind of stuff. And I hear other podcasts talking about rate, review, and subscribe if you do that. I'll give you a shout out on the air and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to start doing that in 2021. I am. I really am. I promise. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. So glad that you could be with us. Okay. The New York Jets. The New York Jets. The New York Jets. The New York freaking Jets. Doing New York Jets things. They can't win for winning in this situation. Beat the Los Angeles Rams on the road 23-20 for their first win of the season. 
The Jets, they were 17-point underdogs, so they were the, just the 15th team in NFL history to win as 17 points under 17 point underdogs. The Jets now tied at 1 and 13 with the Jaguars, but the Jaguars own the tiebreaker because they have a weaker strength of schedule. La 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 la. Believe shit. Unflipping believable. 2021 starting quarterback for the Jets, Sam Darnold. Played his most efficient game of the season. He was 22 of 31 for 207 yards, a touchdown, snapping a streak of five straight games of under 200 yards passing. He had no turnovers, made smart decisions under pressure, throwing the ball away instead of doing what he's been doing since his days at USC, trying to make, uh, trying to make uh, sweet potatoes out of shit. So uh, hey, you know what? The Jets won a football game for the first time since you know in 358 days. So we're approaching a year. Let me ask you, Jet fans, are y'all unhappy still about Greg Williams now? Are you still, guys, still unhappy and embarrassed about the miracle at MetLife? That's now going to be like water under the bridge. No, that's oh, that's just going to be more salt in the wound because as Trevor Lawrence is bringing the Jacksonville Jaguars back to prominence and he's leading them to the Super Bowl and he's collecting MVP awards and he's being on Allstate commercials and he's being on Progressive commercials and he's being on Miller Lite commercials and he's the face of the franchise and he's the face of the league and the jerseys for uh, Trevor Lawrence and the Jacksonville Jaguars uh, jersey is being just swooped off the shelves. The Jet fans are going to be sitting there talking about, God damn it, you Justin Fields who only played three seasons, two starts, and was a bust. And we still have now the miracle at MetLife when everything is all said and done. It just looks so, it looked, it just, it was bleak for Jet fans. I tell you, the game looked bleak right from the beginning. Because on the first possession, the Jets converted four third downs Three on passes to running back Ty Johnson. The last of those third down conversions was an 18-yard touchdown pass from Darnold to Johnson. They gave the Jets a 7-0 lead with 6.25 left to go in the first quarter. All right. All right, we can handle that. I mean, the Jets have been in the lead, be- in the lead before this season. They've blown it, and they've gotten blown out. So, no, no big deal. It was a nice opening. But, you know, they're playing the Rams. Uh, Aaron Donald and the boys are going to get it together. Jared Goff, Sean McVay. I mean, come on. We'll be fine. Don't worry about the the, the, the the Rams are going to come back and do what they need to do. So the Jets, though, as watching the game, New York kicked two more field goals in the first half after a block by JT Hassel and Bryce Hall had an interception. All of a sudden, it's 13 nothing. All right, all right. Hey, 13 nothing. I mean, we are talking about the New York Jets here. Still a two-possession game. The half isn't over. These are the New York Jets that we're talking about. I'm quite sure that the Los Angeles Rams will wake up. I mean, so far, not very good. But Jared Goff and Cooper Cup and Robert Woods and those guys, they'll, they'll get it together. The running game will get better. And sooner or later, the Rams will start putting it in gear and do what they need to do. To have the uh, New York Jets lose, so again, we can keep our hopes alive, so we can keep our dreams alive, so we don't need to be praying, we don't need to be on our hands and knees saying, please, Lord, please, don't worry about this. These are the New York Jets playing on the road against the Los Angeles Rams. I'm not worried, I'm not concerned, two-possession game will be fine, especially after the Rams kicked the field goal, the time expired, and the second half to make it 13-3 at half. Okay, so we're going to get the ball. 
Uh, you know, well, second half is going to be all Rams. Don't worry about it. This is what I'm thinking as a New York Jets fans. It's going to be all Rams. So I'm not worried about it. I'm not really concerned about it. Everything's going to be cool until the Jets open the second half with an 11 play 72 yard drive. Frank Gore scoring from the one when Gates went for it on fourth and one to make the score 20 to three. God, what the hell is going on here? Come on, Rams. What the fuck are you doing? These are the Jets, for God's sakes. This is my 0-13 New York Jets. What are you doing? Come on, golf. What the fuck? You signed that contract extension? You're supposed to be one of the elite cornerbacks. You're being paid like it. What the hell are you doing? What's up with this offense? Come on, McVay, Mr. Genius over here. Come on, man. Mr. fucking Doogie Howser of basketball. I mean, of football. Come on, man, show us what a genius you are. What the hell are you doing? This is a, these are the Jets. You're jeopardizing our opportunity to get Trevor fucking Lawrence. Are you kidding me? Do you realize that we have the opportunity to get the most important football player in franchise history outside of Joe Namath? And you guys are dicking around, falling behind to my Jets 20 to 3? What the hell are you doing? Jacksonville won. Didn't Jacksonville win today? Yeah, they got blown out by Baltimore. So yeah, what are you what are you guys doing? Get it together. You realize that score by the Jets, what this what the first second half touchdown the Rams had given up, the defense had given up uh at home this season in the game in the second half. Do you realize that? What it was the first second half touchdown the Rams defense had allowed at home this season, and the Jets were leading twenty to three. But 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 Oh, thank goodness. The Rams offense came to life in the second half. Robert Woods catching a 15-yard touchdown pass to make it 20 to 10. Thank you very much. That's more like it. Now we're going to start moving. Now we're going to start grooving. All right, here we go. Still the third quarter. We're still still a two-possession uh, football game. Plenty of time. Remember, these are the New York Jets. These are my 0-13 New York Jets. I'm not panicking. I'm not panicking. I was a little angry when we got down, when we, you know, when we, when we got down 20 to 3. When we went ahead 20 to 3, I was a little bit angry. I was a little bit pissed off. I was a little bit concerned, but I see now that the Rams, glass half empty, uh, glass half full, starting to move, starting to groove. All right. All right. All right. All right. But then the Jets settled for another field goal to go up 23 to 10. With a minute 39 left to go in the third quarter. Okay, it's still a two-possession game. <laughs> still, We're still right there. All right? I mean, I'm, I'm shocked that the Rams allowed the New York Jets, my 0-13 New York Jets, to score 23 points in the third quarter. D- Darnold's looking pretty good. He hasn't made that silly mistake. He hasn't made that stupid mistake yet. The defense for my Jets, my 0-13 Jets, my need for this franchise to get Trevor Lawrence Jetster, they're doing well, but but again, I'm going to keep a positive approach. I'm going to keep a glass half full approach. I am going to think positive, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to hope, and I'm going to do everything I can that the Los Angeles Rams finally wake up, finally realize who they're playing, and my Jets realize that, oh, wait, that's right. We're the Jets. We're not supposed to win, and hopefully in the fourth quarter, things will be rectified Los Angeles will win this game, and my New York Jets can continue on to drafting Trevor Lawrence, securing that number one spot, holding on 
to that number one spot, which this season, that's the second most prized possession in the NFL. Right, right after winning the Lombardi Trophy, the second greatest prize in the NFL this season is obtaining the number one pick to uh, draft Trevor Lawrence. So, <sighs> all right, here we go, fourth quarter. Come on. Come on, Rams, let's do this. Come on, Jets. Come on, let's see what you can do about the... Let's throw an interception, Sam. I know you got an interception in you. Come on, let's do it. Come on, I need a fumble. I need something. I need these Rams to get going. Fourth quarter, Jared Goff found uh, Tyler Higby for a three-yard touchdown pass with 13.47 left to play. Cut the lead to just 23.17. Yeah! Yeah! All right. All right, here we go. That was a little bit... I'm a little bit scared, man. I, the, way, the way my Jets were playing, I just, and how badly the Rams were playing, man, I was scared for real, man. I thought we were going to go ahead and win this game. <laughs> Whew, thank goodness. But uh, yeah, it looks like we've got, looks like we got things under control. It looks like the scenario. I've, I've seen this story. I've seen this movie before. I, I know how this turns out. Adam Gaze is Adam Gaze. <laughs> Sean McVay is Sean McVay. <laughs> Sam Darnold is Sam Darnold. <laughs> the Rams, they're fighting for a playoff spot. So, you know, they're going to be juiced. They're going to be energized. They're going to be ready to go. <sighs> okay, let's see what we can do here. Let's uh, go ahead. Next possession. Score that touchdown, 24-23. Then put some separation. And <sighs> let's continue our march for Trevor Lawrence. Thank goodness. The Rams made it 23-20 on a 42-yard, 42-year-old, 42-year-old, 42-yard field goal. By uh, the uh, by Gay to make it 23-20 with 6.35 left to play. Okay, so the Rams are going to win this game 23-20. Cutting it kind of close. Cutting it kind of close. But <laughs> they're going to they're gonna win this game. Just, you know, just, just that and the other. Especially after they got the ball with 5.33 left to go in the game. All right, here we go. At the very least, at the very least, with about two minutes left, they're going to kick a field goal. So, you know, at the worst case scenario, we're going into overtime. Likely scenario is we're gonna the Rams are gonna score that touchdown. My Jets are gonna lose. 0-14, here we come. The Jets got the uh, the Rams got the ball to the Jets 37. Then on fourth and four. Fourth and four. Fourth and four. Jet 37. Now nah, man, you can't kick a fucking field goal from the 37. Fourth and four. All right, golf back back to pass. Pass, thrown left side deep. Pass intended for Gerald Everett. It's broken up! It's broken up! Oh my God, he's broken up! 3.54 left to go in the game. Oh shit, shit, shit. The Jets get the ball. Oh my God. We're ahead for God's sakes. How many, how many timeouts do the Rams have? How many timeouts do the goddamn Rams have? Shit. Oh my god. Come on, man. Come on. Come on, man. We need to make a stop. Make a stop. We might win this game. We might win. Oh my goodness gracious. So the Jets took over with 354 and they were able to run the clock down. The biggest play of the game was third and six. A pass from San Donald to Gore that got a first down at the two minute warning. So here we go. Third and six. Third and six. All right, come on. Come on, come on. I need I need you, Aaron. I need you, Donald. Come on, man, please. Make a play, make a play, make a play, make a play. Come on, come on, come on. Third and six. Back to pass. He's back to pass. Sack him, sack him, sack Fuck! God damn it! Oh, sh- How much time is left? 
They could take it down to the two minute warning and then you. Oh, fuck. Oh, God damn. Son of a God damn. That's it. That's it. We, we, we won, y'all. The New York Jets won. God damn it. We won. Hmm. There goes our chances to draft Trevor Lawrence. Are you sure? Are you sure that the Jacksonville Jaguars had the number one pick? Because we're both one and thirteen. So we bis- so we both finish one and fifteen. What happens? Seriously. But we're the we suck. Jacksonville's a lot better than us. How did it, how did the NFL determine? How? What? Strength of schedule? Oh, fuck you, NFL. Bullshit. Bullshit. Cannot believe this. God damn it, man. Get the number two pick in the draft. Ugh. You know what? I should have done that whole scenario in my New York uh, accent. Who do we get with the number four pick? Are you Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Say a fucking Donald comes in. He threw a six-yard out pass. That's a two-minute. We're going to lose. We're going to win the game. Sal, we're going to win the game. Our chances of drafting Trevor Lawrence is done. We lost. Can't believe it. Un-fucking-believable, man. Un-fucking-believable. Only the fucking New York Jets. The fucking New York Jets. Fuck you, Adam Gaze. Can't believe it. You son of a bitch. You, I can't, oh, unfucking believable Can you, can you believe that? I, I'm going to call, I'll, I can't wait to call the fan in the morning. This is some straight bullshit, man. I give that a C minus. But yeah, though, that's what's happening because of the uh, way the rules are set up. So, look, what happens if the Jets get the number two pick? The way Jacksonville is playing, look, before... Before this game against the Rams, we thought the best the, the New York Jets did was against the Las Vegas Raiders in terms of their chances to win. And after they lost that game, it was like, all right, there's no way the Jets are going to be competitive or there's no way the Jets are going to be able to overcome that. They'll finish 0-16 and zippity doo dah to the number one pick. So there you go. So who knows, man? It looks pretty grim. Looks looks pretty grim for the... Uh, New York Jets fans because Jacksonville is playing pretty poorly. So, I mean, they might have mailed it in already. Who knows what's happening. But let's just take the scenario of the Jets getting the number two pick. Do you stay put at number two and draft a quarterback, Justin Fields of Ohio State, maybe a Zach Wilson, maybe a Trey Lance? I don't think you you draft Zach Wilson or Trey Lance Number two, I think if you're going to go ahead and go that route, you should be able to trade trade that uh, pick, collect some more assets, and then at 8, 10, 12, maybe Wilson or Lance are going to be there. Teams always overshoot and overprice quarterbacks to begin with. So despite, you know, the performances by Justin Fields, despite the fact of Zach Wilson limitations, despite the fact of uh, Trey Lance playing at North Dakota State and not really playing at all this season, somebody is going to uh, do something kooky. Some organization is going to do something kooky and overvalue one of those quarterbacks and quote-unquote take a reach on him. So 
If you're the Jets, if I'm number two, if I stay at number two and I'm looking to draft a quarterback, it's either Justin Fields or that's it. I'm not, I'm not getting Zach Wilson or Trey Lance. That's way too high. Now, Fields and Wilson are both in contention to be the next quarterback taken after Trevor Lawrence, and neither is considered a to be the you know the prospect that Lawrence is, but they're both thought of highly in NFL circles. Franchise quarterback, blah blah blah. So, I mean, you know. We are speaking about the Jets here, and this is football. And as Deshaun Watson can attest, and you'd be used as an example, no matter how good you are as a quarterback, if you don't have a team around you, it really doesn't mean that much. Deshaun Watson is a top-five quarterback. He's playing like a top-five quarterback, but he doesn't have a running game. His main wide receiver is in Arizona. The offensive line stinks. The defense can't stop anybody, especially during the, uh, on the run game. So despite the brilliance of Deshaun Watson and his ability to keep Houston in these games, Houston is not sniffing the playoffs. Houston is not near a playoff contender because the pieces and the foundation and the players surrounding Watson stink. So even if the Jets were fortunate enough to be able to draft Trevor Lawrence, that's a good start. That's a great start. That's a tremendous start. That's a generational changing type of franchise start but it don't mean jack shit if you still have the same type of dysfunction that the new york jets have displayed in terms of putting a team uh, on the field that could be worthy of someone of trevor lawrence's skills so if it's not lawrence what's the difference if, if the jets aren't going to do anything to improve the totality of the team whether it's Fields, Lawrence, Wilson, Mac Jones, Trey Lance, doesn't matter. You're still going to be the flipping New York Jets who are going to be no damn good. So what, instead of winning one game, but Trevor Lawrence can get you to what, four or five or six games tops? What is that going to do? Are you winning the Super Bowl? The only team that's in contention to win championships that's only won six games is Ohio State. And that's college football. So are you going to be happy four or five years down the road? Um, ooh, Andrew Luck can attest to the fact Andrew Luck was supposed to be the next can't miss, he's unbelievable, Hall of Famer face of the franchise, face of the league type of guy from Stanford but he was surrounded by garbage during his time in Indianapolis, got the hell beat out of him and finally said enough is enough and retired prematurely so yeah, I mean I'm not trying to you know soften the blow or I'm not trying to say it's no big deal if you guys don't get the opportunity to draft Trevor Lawrence, but that's just a start. That doesn't guarantee you anything. And you have to ask yourself, especially going forward, do the Jets even have an organization that's worthy enough to select someone like Trevor Lawrence and then build around him enough to where the Jets can be a team with a franchise generational great quarterback that can win championships and compete for Super Bowls and that type of thing, so... You know, who knows? Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So if the New York Jets stay at number two, decide to draft a quarterback, in all actuality, it should be Justin Fields. But they should also maybe, and I'm quite sure they're dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's, they should also try and see what the um, trade value is for that number two pick going around to see what they can do if they're going to keep Sam Darnold. 
who knows what Sam Darnold is all about. You put, you know, you, you see what happens if you get yourself another coach and what his thoughts and opinions are. We see how well Sam Darnold plays moving forward. I mean, we, we saw the transformation of Ryan Tannehill when he got away from Adam Gaze's coaching. Adam Gaze was known for, what, coaching up Peyton Manning? Ooh, that's really tough. But, uh, you know, he didn't do jack shit with Ryan, with uh, Ryan Tannehill. He goes to Tennessee under a coach, Mike Vrabel, who's a defensive-minded coach, played linebacker for the New England Patriots during his heyday. And now we see how well Ryan Tannehill is playing, oh, with a uh, stud running back like a Derrick Henry. Oh, that's right. It takes more than one player to uh, make an efficient offense or defense. So if you feel that Sam Darnold could be a quarterback, who could be the quarterback in three or four years of a team that's good enough to be in the playoffs. And once you get into the playoffs, anything can happen. Do you then say, well, you know, instead of drafting a quarterback in number two, let's see what we can do to trade that pick. And if you remember the last time in a draft where something like, like that happened, it was in 2016 where the Eagles, Philadelphia Eagles, traded two first-round picks, a second-round pick, a third-round pick, and a fourth-round pick to the Cleveland Browns to move up to uh, take Guess who? Carson Wentz. So, luckily, so that's in 2016 to draft someone like a Carson Wentz who's not near, well, I guess you could say he's about probably similar in terms of prospects if you're speaking about a team who needs a Justin Fields type of quarterback. But in 2016, if that's the haul that a number two pick is going to get get you, if you're the Cleveland Browns, I mean, if you're the um, if you're the New York Jets. You definitely got to look at that, especially with Sam Darnold being under contract for one more year. You're not really tied to him long term. So even you can use next season as a season to see if this is going to be the quarterback that you want to have going forward. So it's not all doom and gloom, man. I mean, you know, come on. Do the Jets take a Jamar Chase, a Micah Parsons, Devonta Smith, a Penny Sewell if they stay at number two? Do they just pick the best player available? I would hoard picks. When you're 1-13, you got to hoard picks. So that's exactly what I do. And if, if you really think about it, as I mentioned before, everyone's talking about, oh, shit, man, number one pick, number one pick, uh, Trevor Lawrence, Trevor Lawrence. Well, if you take a look at the quarterbacks who have been drafted number one in the NFL draft throughout the history, starting back in 1998 when Peyton Manning was selected number one by the Indianapolis Colts. And, of course, Peyton Manning goes down as one of the greatest all-time quarterbacks in the game. And him and Tom Brady at the head of the table in terms of the best quarterbacks of their generation. If you speak about the quarterbacks that have been drafted number one since 1998, Tim Couch, Michael Vick, David Carr, Carson Palmer, Eli Manning, Alex Smith, the world-renowned Jamarcus Russell, Matthew Stafford, Sam Bradford, Cam Newton, Andrew Luck, Jameis Winston, Jared Goff, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, and last uh, season, Joe Burrow. You take a look at that uh, collection of number one quarterback picks, number one picks, uh, draft picks. You take a look at those guys. You know, there's only been two players, two quarterbacks drafted number one since 1998 who have won the MVP. Now, Peyton Manning did it five times. But the only other quarterback to do that was Cam Newton. And if you take away the uh, Mannings, Peyton and Eli, and you ask the question, what number one player, what number one quarterback drafted in the uh, NFL draft has led their team to a Super Bowl championship? You take out Peyton and take out Eli. 
That question, the answer to that question is zero. None of those quarterbacks who I mentioned, again, outside of Eli and Peyton, has led their team, not just to a Super Bowl victory, but to a Super Bowl. Only one quarterback, Cam Newton, has led the team to a um, Super Bowl appearance outside of Eli and Peyton. So if you take a look at that group also, how many how many Hall of Famers do you see? Peyton, of course. But outside of that, you think Eli's going to be getting in? That's probably the next best shot. Now, we don't know what's going to be happening with um, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, or Joe Burrow. We, we, we don't know what kind of um, career they're going to have. But my, my point is, just because you're losing out on the ability to get yourself a Trevor Lawrence type of uh, quarterback, that doesn't mean that automatically that should be something to where it should sink your franchise for decades. You still got the number two pick. You still have options for you to be a very good franchise. And the last time I checked, the greatest quarterback, one of the greatest quarterbacks who ever played, Peyton, um, uh, Tom Brady, was not drafted number one. You take a look at all the great quarterbacks in today's game, Patrick Mahomes is going to go down as a generational great if he continues to play like he's playing. Not only was he not drafted number one, he wasn't drafted number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten. Who knew Patrick Mahomes was going to be this great? Deshaun Watson wasn't drafted number one. Back in the day, Ben Roethlisberger wasn't drafted number one. He just passed uh, the 60,000-yard career mark, and he's led Pittsburgh to a couple of Super Bowls. Amazing what you can do when you're a good quarterback to go to a strong organization. Again, you take a look at someone like a Michael Vick who was supposed to set the world on fire and change the way football was played from the quarterback position, but he went to a place in Atlanta that didn't have the structure to curtail some of the nonsense, the immaturity, and the unprofessionalism that he espoused while he was with that organization. And a generational talent like Michael Vick was thrown down the, uh, thrown down the tubes. We take a look at someone like, again, an Andrew Luck, who was supposed to be that guy. And after a couple of seasons in, I believe, when he made the um, AFC Championship, what, his second year or third year, one of those years where he lost to Tom Brady. But after that, the ascension toward being one of the best, if not the best quarterback in the league for the next eight to ten years, that was curtailed because, well, the Colts didn't build anything around him. The offensive line was horrific. There were no running backs. I mean, remember they made a trade for Trenton Richardson from uh, Cleveland when Richardson was a high draft pick to give Andrew Luck a, a running back that he needed, and he was a bomb. He didn't do anything. So the, the Colts organization, dysfunctional as it was back then, I mean, Jim Irsay was going through his bullshit, um, didn't uh, do Andrew Luck right. And in not doing Andrew Luck right, they didn't do the NFL right by doing that. So... If you're if you're a New York Jet fan and you're moaning and bemoaning and wishing and praying, you know, whether you get Trevor Lawrence, whether you get Zach Wilson, whether you get uh, Mac Jones, whoever you get at the quarterback position, maybe if you stay with Sam Darnold, remember, as Jerry Krause once said, organizations win championships. And even if the Jets get lucky and Jacksonville does something stupid and lose, and the New York Jets reclaimed their spot at the number one pick to draft Trevor Lawrence. Again, great start, awesome start, fantastic start, hopeful start. But that doesn't guarantee that the New York Jets won't be the same old New York Jets.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The holiday of it edition of Wendell's World in Sports. As I'm looking at a 60-something degree day out here in Las Vegas. I don't know what the temperature is around your neck of the woods, around your block, within your neighborhood, in your on your street, within your community, snowing. Sunny or bright, everything happy and light, don't know, rainy, windy, don't know. But I hope that you're doing what you need to do during this difficult holiday season by doing what's right, distance, masks, sacrificing, seeing loved ones in a large group setting, doing what we need to do to move this forward because celebrating the Christmas season irresponsibly is not worth going through the pain and suffering of the aftermath. Right, we get to celebrate December 25th, but January 25th, February 25th, and March 25th, we're going to be suffering and paying for it. So let's see what we can do to, uh, I don't know, try to do something, at least in this country, something that we're not used to doing and something that we're not good at. Being unselfish in using common sense and thinking about others other than ourselves. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let's talk about some uh, college football conference championship weekend. This past weekend, supposed to be the game of the weekend. Uh, we're speaking about the ACC championship game, the game of the weekend in college football. Eh. Number three, Clemson going up against number two, Notre Dame. Oh, a rock and sock em. Oh, my goodness. Are we going to have the same type of frenetic pace and same type of excitement that we had in the regular season where Notre Dame upset the uh, uh, Clemson Tigers 47-40? to 40. Brian Kelly, biggest win in Notre Dame, and blah, 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 and storming the field and all that kind of stuff. What would, what would the rematch bring? The rematch brought a beatdown by the... Clemson Tigers. <laughs> that that's what it that's what it uh, brought. Uh, yeah, yeah, promising game, thirty four to ten, complete domination. Game started well for Notre Dame. They took the opening, kicked off, converted it to a field goal, three nothing. Then they intercepted Trevor Lawrence on uh, Clemson opening possession. They moved the ball down the field, get in position to kick another field goal to go up six nothing late in the first quarter. And you're like, hey. Oh, ooh, ah, they were in position to make an easy field goal to make a 6 nothing. But yet still, even though they missed a 21-yarder, if you're a Notre Dame fan, you're thinking, hey, ooh, kind of like a uh, continuation of the first game in terms of, you know what, without Trevor Lawrence, the 
Tigers put up 40 points, but because we were so superior with our six foot eight, 255 pound Rob Gronkowski look and tight ends and uh, Ian Book that, you know, in the offensive line that we're going to be able to match point for point, score for score, touchdown for touchdown, field goal for field goal with the uh, Clemson Tigers. So yeah, despite we missed that 21 yard field goal, the fact that our first two possessions were scoring opportunities Hell yeah, man. I'm feeling good. Hell yeah. I'm feeling all right. Out of sight, out of mind. I'm going to be getting down all the time. So little did we know, maybe Clemson fans knew. Maybe you knew. I clearly didn't know that the momentum would change so drastically after that uh, missed 21-yard field goal by Notre Dame off the uh, right up upright. So after that, it was all Clemson. Lawrence threw a 67-yard TD pass to Amari Rogers to make a 7-3. Okay, we're cool. That was the first of four straight scoring drives by Clemson to close the first half. So it was like a snowball rolling down a hill, rolling. So Notre Dame missed another opportunity on a drop pass, difficult uh, throw on fourth and three. Then the Tigers said, thank you very much. Lawrence moved the ball 72 yards on six plays, finding Williams on a crossing route. For a 33-yard score to make it 14 to three, and right there it was kind of like, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. Clemson went into halftime leading 24 to three after Travis Etienne's long touchdown run at late in the second quarter, and um, basically that was it. Basically it was ball game. Basically it was uh, you know time for filler. Basically it was time for the Kurt uh, Kurt. Uh, Kurt Herbstreit and the Chris Fowler uh, Showtime Amateur Night at the Apollo Joke Fest. So, um, you know, that that was it. Lawrence added another long touchdown run. And the uh, competitive game was done. That was about it. Clemson's defense played a big part in the turnaround from the regular season loss at uh, Notre Dame. Of course, they returned one of the middle linebacker, James uh, Salky or something like that, defensive Tackle Tyler Davis. Both those guys didn't play. They were pretty intricate in terms of the success that Clemson had in shutting down the Irish. Defense improved uh, again. Notre Dame gained 518 yards the first game. This time, they only 263. And they sacked quarterback Ian Brooks six times. Okay. Held running back Tyron Williams to 49 yards rushing. The first game against Clemson, he ran for 140. Okay. Ian Book was 20 of 28 for 219 yards and no touchdowns. And he did more running around. I'm quite sure the guy must have ran from uh, there to Indianapolis. The the amount of yards he was running around when everything was all calculated up. In the first game, he was 22 of 39 for 310 yards and one touchdown along with 67 yards rushing on 14 carries. Not the same as the game on Saturday. Notre Dame was just 3 of 12 on third downs. and uh, And Clemson had 10 tackles for losses. (laughs) <laughs> ball game <laughs> all Clemson on offense a much better balance with the improved running game Travis ATM after being shut down in the first game he ran for 124 yards in a score the team ran for 219 yards total on 27 carries they had 541 total yards and 8 yards per play they were 9 of 15 on 3rd and 4th down yeah okay well Notre Dame doing Notre Dame type things under Brian Kelly. Now, look, you can sit there and say, like, look, man, every three, four years, something new, people, you know, every 
new crop, crop of people come in, blah, blah, blah. You know, you, you can't go 10, 5, 8 years to be like, oh, yeah, same old Notre Dame. No, same old Notre Dame. By the way, can we stop with the, hey, Trevor Lawrence, what do you think about him winning the Heisman Trophy? Why was there any ever any doubt? Well, you know, you need to make the distinction between the best player in the game and who's having the best season. The person who's having the best season is Trevor Lawrence. The most important person on college football to his team is Trevor Lawrence. What are you talking about? It's not even close. Hey, look, apologies to Devonta Smith, Mac Jones, Kyle Trask. Um, I don't know. Um, anybody else? I'm, I'm sorry. But it ain't happening. Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, I'm sorry. Trevor Lawrence is the best football player in college, and it ain't even close. Against Notre Dame in the ACC championship game, he had 412 yards, a total offense, three touchdowns. He was 25 of 36 for 322 yards, ran 14 times for 90 yards, including a 34-yard touchdown run. He's now 34-1 in his career as a starter at Clemson. Why are we having this discussion? Why are we bringing up these other names? Why are we really seriously talking about Matt Jones being the leader for the Heisman Trophy two or three or four weeks ago? Why was it that you had people like Zach Wilson? You had people like Najee Harris. You had people like uh, Kyle Trask talking about their favorite, you know, you take the ad books and everything like that, that their favorite to win the Heisman Trophy over Trevor Lawrence. What are you smoking? What are you snorting? What are you injecting in your brains? How strong is the alcohol that you're drinking? Seriously, how could you go any other way? Well, you know, he missed some time with COVID and this, that, and the other. I don't give a fuck. You're going to be penalizing Trevor Lord for missing a couple of games because of COVID, but you're going to reward Ohio State to be in the national championship playoff deal with them playing only six games? Tell me, how does that work? Winning the Heisman Trophy, let's put it this way. For all the voters who want to go out there and do a Mac Jones or do a Devonta Smith or do a Kyle Trask, and look, you know, after Florida losing, I can't imagine anybody voting for Kyle Trask for the Heisman in terms of being the winner. He'll get some votes. He might be even invited to New York, but he ain't going to win the Heisman. Mac Jones, because of Devonta Smith, I think Devonta Smith, the wide receiver, is, has surpassed Mac Jones, first of all, is kind of boring to vote for a quarterback over and over again. And also because as a football player, Devonta Smith is a better player than Mac Jones. So guys like Najee Harris, the running back out there, Jones, Devonta Smith, they're going to split all their votes. And the biggest impression, the most lasting powerful impression is the latest one that you see. And the latest one that you see is Trevor Lawrence being Trevor Lawrence, reminding everybody how great he is. And I think the fact in the three years, or going on now three years, but the first two years, the fact that he didn't win the Heisman Trophy, I think that's also going to play a role in voters saying, you know what, career award, deserving award, whatever, you go ahead and you win yourself the Heisman Trophy. And if that's true, just think about it this way. If Trevor Lawrence went ahead and won the Heisman Trophy, which he should, and it really shouldn't be close. Then he turns around and wins the national championship, which would give him two and three years. Trevor Lawrence has to be near the top 
when mentioning the greatest quarterbacks who ever played college football over the past 40 years. I don't know about Johnny Lou Jack, and I don't know about uh, Glenn Davis, and I don't know about any of these other guys from the 40s and 50 enough to sit there and be like, well, you know, compared to uh, Sammy Ball at TCU, I would have to say that Lawrence's skill set, and I'm not going to do all that shit, but as far as at least the top 40, the past 40 years, or as long as I've been watching college football, I would say that he's near the top. If you take a look at all of the accomplishments, again, if he goes ahead and wins the Heisman, even if he doesn't win the Heisman Trophy, and even if he doesn't win a national championship, if he loses to Alabama in a shootout in a national championship game, still, he's still right there with the Peyton Mannings and the Tommy Frazier's and the Tim Tebow's and the Matt Leinert's and the Danny Warfels and the Doug Flutie's and the Charlie Ward's. He's right there. He's right there. So... Let's let's kind of let's kind of you know be realistic and reasonable when we're speaking about Trevor Lawrence. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, Devonta. I'm sorry, Mag Jones. I'm sorry, Najee. I'm sorry, Kyle. Don't worry. If I'm Devonta Smith, I'm like fine. You, you, you can give the Heisman to uh, Trevor Lawrence. First of all, he deserves it, and second of all, I'm going to be a top ten pick. So uh, last time I checked, I can't go into a mortgage company and buy a house and for my down payment put down a Heisman trophy. Last time I checked when I go ahead and I buy myself a fancy car and I need a down payment or I want to pay for it in full, I can't pull out my Heisman trophy. You know, if I want to buy some ice, if I want to get some jewels on my fingers and around my neck, I can't go to the jewelry store and pull out a Heisman trophy. So that's fine and dandy. Let me ask you a question. Who won the Heisman trophy five years ago? Who won the Heisman trophy ten years ago? Who won the Heisman trophy two years ago? Who gives a fuck, right? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, Heisman trophies ain't paying my bills. You know, it's nice to, if you want to, for players who ain't got nothing else to do. If I'm Devonta Smith, go ahead and give the Heisman to Trevor Lawrence. If I'm Mac Jones, go ahead and give the award to Trevor Lawrence. If I'm Najee Harris, go ahead and give the award to uh, Trevor Lawrence. Saves me the trip to uh, go back in the next couple of years and, you know, be on the stage when they announce uh, DJ, whoever, whatever, from Clemson, that quarterback, or Bryce Young, the quarterback from Alabama, or whatever, you know, major Power 5 player is going to be getting the Heisman being a quarterback. So, save me the trouble to go to New York City and waste my time doing that nonsense. Of course, I'll be playing football, so I won't even have the opportunity. So, you know, get the ball, give it to Trevor Lawrence. Well-deserved, and let him continue his path on the possibility of being one of the greatest college football players and greatest college football quarterbacks who's ever lived.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. As I'm recording this on a Tuesday afternoon, I've got Arizona and Montana on my Pac-12 network. Watching James Akinjo, former Georgetown guard, play. Looks insane. He looks bigger. Cut his hair. Looks older, but looks a little bit more under control. But still looks like a guy who can't finish and he still can't shoot. So some of the things that I used to get on him for at Georgetown, he's shooting a lot less. Seemed to be a lot more under control. But he still can't shoot, and he still can't finish around the rim, and he still can't get past his opponent, his defender, on a consistent basis. And this is Montana that they're playing against. Arizona now five and one. I wonder how much, I wonder how badly Arizona has to be before Arizona finally says, you know what, Sean, if you're going to cheat and not win, I mean, how how much cheating is the administration at Arizona going to allow Sean Miller before they say? Hey, man, you know, unless you're, like, pulling down, like, championships and, like, having, like, top five success year in and year out, we got to let you go because if you're going to be cheating and all we're going to be doing is being, like, a middling, pretty good Power Five conference, uh, you know, we can do that really without that much cheating. So, you know, see you later, alligator. So we'll, we'll see what that happens. But, you know, James and Kenjo, you know, good riddance. Well, Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wall. We threw up another break. How about that? Surprise, surprise. I guess you're going to blame Coach Miller on that and transfer, James. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. Well, college football. We have our top four, right? I don't really give a rat's ass about five through 25. Let's just talk about the top four. Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame. All right. All right. Ohio State did... What it needed to do to beat Northwestern, 22 to 10. Trey Sermon, hey, Trey Sermon, rushed for a Ohio State record 331 yards with the most rushing yards by any conference championship game in FBS history. And it also broke Ohio State's single game record previously held by 1995 Heisman Trophy winner and former commentator Eddie George. Justin Fields was, again, below subpar, 12 for 27, 114 yards, two interceptions. He said that he couldn't throw the ball late in the game because of a sprained right thumb. I don't think his problem was throwing the ball. I think his problem was holding on to the ball too damn long. And then when things weren't um, going as smoothly as he thought it should, or maybe as he's accustomed to, he started forcing the ball, similar to what he did in against the game, uh, in the game against uh, Indiana, and it led to some really putrid, confusing, confounding interceptions. Same thing, same thing happened with Northwestern. The game for Ohio State was unimpressive. Really? If you're talking about Ohio State being an elite football, college football program, it's unimpressive. It was subpar. It was ho-hum, bland. It was nothing. It was just like, okay, it was like, you know, having sex with a female who you thought looked great, and then after it was done, you just kind of said, That's it. But, uh, yeah, Ohio State didn't score its first touchdown until late in the third quarter when it took a 13-10 lead before taking the lead. You know, Ohio State had some impressive drives, but every time they would get within the red zone or, you know, close to the goal line, the offense stalled. Relying too much on a passing game in the first half. Uh, There was an interception near the end of the first half. Uh, that um, negated an opportunity for Ohio State to score a pretty good one-handed one-handed uh, interception. 
the first drive of the game with their first scoring opportunity of the game. It was a 16-play, 8-minute drive, throwing on their first five plays to go all the way to the Northwestern 7-yard line. But when Fields scored on the touchdown run, it was brought back by a holding call, so they had to settle for a field goal on that deal. And then, as I mentioned before, instead of that touchdown, it was a field goal to make it 3 nothing. Northwestern then went ahead and responded with a 7-play, 75-yard touchdown drive to take a 7-3 lead. And, of course, Gus, got, uh, Gus Johnson was up there losing his mind and yelling and screaming, Oh, my goodness gracious! We've got a ball game in Indianapolis! Ah! So, you know, throughout the first half, Ohio State on offense looked out of rhythm, especially late, especially in the passing game. Fields looked confused, unsure, uncomfortable, held the ball uh, held the ball too long, too many drop-back passing attempts. I mean, you have a guy in Trey Sermon who's running for, like, 80 yards every time he touched the ball. And Ryan Day is like, no, nah, we'll, we'll keep throwing the football. So, I don't know. It was just blah. And everybody's talking about, ooh, man, how about Northwestern? Wow, wow, it's Northwestern. Let's calm down, all right? Let, let, let's stop pretending that Northwestern is, you know, in the same category, in the same mention, on the same tier as the Florida, as the Georgia, as a uh, Texas A&M this season. Let, let's, let's just stop with that. As a Cincinnati, as an Oklahoma, as an Iowa State. Let, let, let's please, let's, enough. Enough. It was a sluggish game against Northwestern, a team that they were clearly better than, a team where it was almost a matter of once these guys really start focusing and trying, they should go ahead and win this game going away, which they did. But again, after watching that game, does that give you any hope that they're going to be able to compete with Alabama and Clemson, if Clemson and Alabama are going to play at the level that they did in their championship, their conference championship games, and this is the best that Ohio State is going to is going to do, I don't I don't think so. If if that's the type of game that Ohio State's going to bring, they're going to get blown out by Clemson. They're going to get blown out. There's going to be no like epic, classic college football semifinal game like it was uh, last season. Clemson is going to blow going to blow them out. So, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. So, let's let's take a look here on Wendell's World of Sports the podcast. I'm your host Wendell Wallace. So, the question, look, we all know that Alabama Clemson belong. They're they're a cut above everybody else. No surprise, no biggie, no really. But does Ohio State, I mean, look, I know they deserve to be there. I know based on talent, I know based on recruiting, and I know based on four or five prospects on the roster and what they did last season and the year before. I, I know that Ohio State is a premier football powerhouse for this period of time in college football. But after taking a look at their schedule and after taking a look at this season and how wacky and unpredictable and out of sync it was with games being canceled and everything, I don't know. I mean, I want to ask the question, does Ohio State deserve to be in the playoffs? A team that only played six games, it could have got in with five. And everybody's talking about, well, you know, they're one of the five, or they're one of the four best teams. Really? Let, let's take away Ohio State. Let's, let's get amnesia. And we know nothing about going into this football season. We know nothing about Ohio State. We don't know anything about their history. We don't know anything about their players. We don't know anything about what they did last season. We don't know what the expectations are. We don't know anything about them. After watching the season, and if I did that for every single football team, and I ask you who are the four best teams in college football, 
you will see, well, that team with the red, with the crimson tide, what's their name again? Alabama, Alabama? Yeah, they're, they're good. I mean, they're real good. They're, 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 they're legit. And that other team in South Carolina with the uh, loudmouth coach, what's his name? Debu? Dubuis? Dabo? Yeah. That, that Clemson team? Yeah, they're legit. They're legit. But if I asked you, well, what about that team in Columbus? The Scarlet Red and the, the black quarterback and, <laughs> and what, what about him? What do you think about that? What do you think about, uh, that team? They're, they're called Ohio State. They would probably say, eh, all right. I mean, I really didn't have a, they really didn't play enough games for me to get a really good feel about how good they were compared to Clemson and Alabama. So I, I really don't know, but, eh, they were all right. Take a look at, again, the amnesia test. We don't know nothing about them test in terms of all we can just, you know, all we can do is just take a look at these guys this year, you know, in terms of how good they were. Is Ohio State that much better than Notre Dame? Now, look, you know, our memories are very short. So the last thing we remember is Notre Dame getting blown out by Clemson in the ACC championship game. I got it. But... Notre Dame went 10-1. and one. And okay, they weren't beating Murderer's Row every week. They, they didn't beat Alabama, then the week after beat Florida, then the week after beat Georgia, then the week after beat Cincinnati, then the week after beat Texas A&M, and then the week after beat USC, and then the week after beat um, um, Oklahoma. I get it. I understand it. But they played some pretty good competition compared to what, Alabama? If you want to go there and say, oh, yeah, what, beating North Carolina is supposed to be a big whoop? If I'm up there talking about Notre Dame, that's your, like, you know, dancing in the street. That's your other than beating Clemson without the best football player in the game, Trevor Lawrence, beating them in double overtime or beating them in overtime on their home field. After that, their second best win is, is against a basketball school, North Carolina, or really? All right. You can make that argument. Who did Alabama beat? Well, they beat shit. They beat Texas A&M. All right. Good win by everything that it looks Heading into the season. Now, we, we don't know in terms of how good Texas A&M was then compared to now. But I'll, I'll give you that. They beat the number five team. They beat the brakes off of them. Great. Awesome. Fantastic. Wonderful. Fine. Fabulous. Magnificent. Who else? Who else did Alabama beat? Well, they beat Auburn. Oh, you mean the one who just fired their coach? The one who was average? Well, they beat out. Never mind LSU. They beat, uh, who did they beat? Who did Alabama beat that has people up there going, oh, fuck yeah. Unbeatable, unstoppable, unmovable, unpenetrable. Oh, yeah. Get down with the Crimson Tide. Get down, get down, get down with the Crimson Tide. Who did they beat? Same thing with Clemson. Who did Clemson beat of any stature? They beat Miami. You mean the team that got rolled over with two running backs combining for 1,200 yards rushing against them at home? That Miami? Who else did they beat? That's my point. I don't know. It's just, it's just, so, you know, for Notre Dame, and the only reason why I bring that stuff up is because, you know, everybody's, you know, screaming and yelling about, oh, my goodness, Notre Dame just got in because of Notre Dame. Nah, nah, I think Ian Book had been one of the better quarterbacks. They did what they needed to do. They weren't in any type of close games in terms of last possession games outside of playing at that time the number one team or number two team in the country. So 
Yeah, I mean, is it nice to have a national product like Notre Dame in the national championship? Yeah. I mean, you got four blue bloods, rich history traditions in college football. Yeah. But do I think the college football committee as inept, as incompetent, as buffoonerish as this whole system is? Do I think that those guys between Texas A&M and Notre Dame, when they were deciding who was going to be that fourth team, took a look and said, well, you know, Put in Rudy. Let's see that again. Just to kind of like get us motivated to put in Notre Dame. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. I bet you Nuke Rockney's name didn't come up once. Before Horseman didn't come up once. Joe Thiesman didn't come up once. Era Parsegian didn't come up once. The 1979 Sugar Bowl game didn't come up once. I'm just throwing out Sugar Bowl. I know that they played Alabama in an important game, and I don't know what, what year it is, man. I don't even know what I did five minutes ago. So I, I don't think any of that stuff came in. And do I think that those committee members sat around and said, well, I mean, you know, if we have Texas A&M number four against Alabama, what do you think the ratings are going to be? Let's, let's sit here and say Alabama, Notre Dame, Alabama, Texas A&M. Which one do you think gets a higher TV rating? Me too. We're going with Notre Dame. I don't I don't think it was that at all. I think it might have played a little bit of, well, you know, we've already seen Texas A&M versus Alabama. We saw the outcome of that game. But who knows, man? That was such a long time ago. We don't know. We, we don't know when it comes to football. We don't know. As dominant, as awesome as Alabama looked, it was still a one-possession game against Florida. And as awesome as Clemson has looked, you never know. Miami looked awesome in 2003. Ohio State was supposed not to have a chance. Guess what happened? Jim Trussell said, oh, really? Maurice Claret said, oh, really? Take a look at the 1983 Orange Bowl between Miami and Nebraska. Nebraska was about to cement their place as the greatest football team who've ever lived. Howard Schnellenberger and Bernie Kosar said, oh, really? You think so? Uh-huh, okay. USC, I remember the week of the Rose Bowl game between USC and Texas where they had Mark May and Kurt Herbstreit and and um, the old guy who's uh, making a fool of himself with the uh, with the head stuff, with the helmets, um, mascot deal. Lee Corso, thank you, Lee Corso. Those guys were sitting around at the Rose Bowl with Reese Davis, and they were having discussions about what – how would USC fare against some of the greatest teams in college football history? They were bringing up Bud Wilkinson's Oklahoma teams and all the the Miami Hurricane teams of the 80s and the Nebraska teams. And, you know, they were up there sitting and talking about, well, you know, compared to uh, those teams, how do you think USC would do? And Mark May and Lee Corso and, and Lou Holtz at the time and a couple of others were sitting there talking about, oh, yeah, USC, oh, they would, they would go ahead and win that game. Oh, yeah, USC's a better team. Oh, USC this. Oh, USC that. Oh, USC, USC. And meanwhile, Mac Brown and Vince Young and those guys in Texas were sitting up there going, oh, okay. Yeah, it's going to be pretty disappointing when we make y'all look like fools by talking about, oh, yeah, Reggie Bush and Lindell White and Matt Leinard and Mike Williams and blah, 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 and blee, 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 and they're so great and they're the greatest team of all time. And, oh, shit, Vince Young just had a combined 400 yards, 200 yards rushing and passing combined uh, for 400 yards against us. Oh, yeah. So we can kind of shelve that talk about, is USC going to be the coronation? USC, after the game against 
Texas in the Rose Bowl or is going to go down? Where are they going to go now? They're the greatest team of all time. We don't know. We don't know. So the way these guys choose these teams and the way the playoff system is in college football is so ridiculous, is so clownishly incompetent that who knows? Who knows who the four best teams are? I've been yelling this week after week after week. Give me your definition of who you think the four best teams are or give me your definition of what you think a great team, best team is. Is it based on talent only? Is it based on the regular season? Is it based on their quarterback? Is it What's it, what's it based on? Because Notre Dame is the third best team in college football uh, by these guys in this committee. But where are their convincing wins? Okay, Nebraska, Penn State, Rutgers, they blew out Michigan State. They beat Indiana 42-35 after being up like 35-7 in the second half of the game. Ugly game against Northwestern, 22-10 in the championship. So six games. So let's take a look at four of those regular season games. Nebraska, Penn State, Rutgers, and Michigan State. All right, did well. Convincing. But you combine those records of the teams that they beat in that bunch I just named. Those records are combined 12-21. and 21. Is that supposed to be like, oh, fuck yeah, after that, you know they're the third best team in the country. How do you know? I mean, Nebraska, Penn State, Rutgers, Michigan State, I mean, you know, just to go to another level of stupidity in trying to debate this ridiculous argument, if Alabama played those teams, you don't think that they would have been more dominant? And, of course, that leads to, well, you know, um, Nebraska played Rutgers tough and Ohio State beat Rutgers by only X number of points, while Notre Dame two years ago played Nebraska and beat them by X amount of points. So if you take a look at the point differential between what Ohio State did against Rutgers compared to what Notre Dame did against Nebraska, that means that, of course, Notre Dame must be just as good or at or better than Ohio State. You know how they do that stupid bullshit? Well, you know, in the regular season there, you know, you got to remember that Nebraska, or um, let's go to the SEC, or... Um, you got to remember here, um, if you're comparing teams, Kansas, um, Texas A&M only beat this team by 25 points, while Nebraska played them and beat them by 36 points. So are you trying to say then that Alabama is 11 points better than Texas A&M? Or, you know, when they, when they start doing it. Well, you got to remember, Florida, Texas A&M beat Florida by 3. Florida beat Tennessee by 20. Texas A&M beat Tennessee by only 18. So really, that means that Texas A&M or Florida is a little bit better than what we thought because Texas A&M only beat Tennessee by X amount of points while Florida beat Tennessee by more points. So that means that the game where Texas A&M beat Florida, we should add a little bit more Browning points and we should give them a little bit more respect because after all, Florida did better against Tennessee than Texas A&M did. What the fuck are we talking about? How, this is how we're deciding who the four best teams are? If you're, in a, if you're in this committee for real, and you're sitting there of sound mind and body, and you're hearing these fucking clowns say this stuff, do you raise your hand and say, what the fuck are you guys talking about? What are we doing here? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't, it's just, so many different avenues. There's so many different, there's infinite many arguments that can be made on who's better and who's not better. 
I mean, take a look at Ohio State again. I keep going back to Ohio State. They only played six games. The two toughest teams that they played, their quarterback stunk. Against Indiana Fields with 18 of 30 for 300 yards, two touchdowns, three interceptions. I wouldn't consider that game he stunk. The interceptions he threw were so bad that I guess you could say he had a C minus D game against Indiana. And then against Northwestern, 12 of 27, 114 yards, two interceptions. I mean, that was nothing. They didn't win that game because of Justin Fields. They won it because they were playing a team that they were infinitely more talented than. And they won it because Trey Sermon could not be stopped. I mean, just think if Trey Sermon came along with Eric Smith, Parrish Smith, EPMD, baby. You've got to chill on that. So, I don't know, man. I, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how they come up with this bullshit. I don't know how they come up with the conference championship in terms of using that to decide who the best team is. If Florida would have beaten Alabama, it wouldn't have made a difference. But then again, if Florida... Player for Florida wouldn't be wouldn't have been so stupid to throw a shoe down the field that would have given LSU an opportunity to win the game. But then again, just because LSU beat Florida once on kind of like a fluky game, that all of a sudden now that's going to be a death nail for Florida not participating or not being one of the four best teams. You you could make an argument. You could. If you got Johnny Cochran skills, God bless, God rest his soul. You know, you got Jerry Spence's skills that you could go ahead and you could make an argument to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Florida lost three games. Sure. Um, Ohio State didn't lose any. But let's take a look at the losses that Florida had. They lost a highly competitive game against Alabama when Alabama was playing his best football in the country. They lost early in the season to... Texas A&M on the road by three points on the last, sec- last second field goal. And they lost a fluky game against LSU with the fog rolling in when the referee decided to throw an unsportsmanlike conduct. Uh, was it the, was it on the road? Well, they just played on the swamp. They played at the swamp. But still, I mean, that was kind of like a fluky type of game with the fog rolling in and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, kind of dampened the um, visibility and all those type of things. So, Really, if you take a look at the losses for Florida, you could say that those three losses, in particular, the loss they had against Alabama near the end of the season, where now we should really be deciding which teams are the most deserving or the four best teams in the country, you could easily make the argument that despite three losses, that Florida, based on how they did against Alabama, And Ohio State, based on how they played against Northwestern, how could you not make the argument that Florida is a better football team, college football team, than Ohio State? Oh, well, they lost three games. No, 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 no. I don't give a fuck about losing three games. Don't tell me about losing the game in September. Don't tell me about dinging Florida because they lost to the best team in the country by a country mile and played a competitive game right up to the final minute of the game. Don't 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 give me that. Don't give me that. So name me a better performance outside of Clemson and well shit really outside of Alabama. Name me a better performance by a team this season than Florida's performance in a losing effort against Alabama. Name me one. 
So I don't know. I don't know. It's it's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. And um, what's the best way I can say this about the college football playoffs? Oh yeah, that's right. It's just ridiculous. Someday at Christmas, men won't be boys Playing with bombs like kids play with toys One warm December, our hearts will see A world where men are free mm-hmm. Someday at Christmas, there'll be no wars When we have learned what Christmas is for when we have found what life's really worth, there'll be peace on earth. Someday all our dreams will come to be. Someday in a world what men are free. Maybe not in time for you and me, but someday at Christmas time. When those world in sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, so glad that you could be with me, and me being with you. However you're listening to this podcast, thank you very much. Rate, review, subscribe, do it, do it. You know what, I don't ask for Christmas Christmas presents, I'm a unselfish guy, don't ask for too much in life, health, family being well taken care of, mentally, physically. Uh, my beautiful, wonderful, fantastic goddaughter and my closer than brother. Their lives being taken care of. Happiness. Harmoniousness. Harmonious. Harmony. 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 But whatever. That's all I ask for. That's all I really ask for. But if you could just do me a favor. Do me a favor. For Christmas. Go ahead and give me a rate and a review on Apple iTunes. And a subscribe. That would be the best Christmas gift that I could ever have. Outside of uh, Jada Fire knocking on my door naked. Wendell's World of Sports. Well, what a Christmas present that would be. Woo. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me see here on this wonderful Christmas day. Who is knocking at my door? Oh, how about that? It's Jada Fire and you're flipping naked. Yeah, you look just as good in person as you do on the... Okay, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with me. Um, Just to wrap up with going down in college football. um, Again, the top four teams, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Notre Dame. Notre Dame and Alabama are going to play at the Rose Bowl at Texas Stadium. They're going to play the Rose Bowl game at Texas Stadium. It was announced a couple of, uh, over the weekend that they were going to be relocating the game from California where COVID is rampant to another place where COVID is even more rampant, which is Dallas, Texas. So go figure. But I'm quite sure it's a situation where, you know, you're going to have people be able to come in and watch the game and have the family and friends watch the game. So that's one of the reasons. Ohio State is going to be playing Clemson at the Sugar Bowl. There's going to be some a little extra juice for the game. Because Clemson's coach Dabo Sweeney, he's feeling himself, man. Dabo is just like, you know what? I got a powerhouse squad. I got an elite squad. I've become like one of the real players in college football. So, um, you know, 
I'm pulling down my pants, taking out my Johnson and swinging it and swing and in uh, daring anybody to do something about it. But you know, he, if Dabo Sweeney ranked Ohio State 11th on this coaches poll, he had Alabama, Clemson, the team that he coached, Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, then he had Texas A&M, Florida, Georgia, Cincinnati, Oklahoma, Iowa State, and then Coastal Carolina before placing Ohio State at number 11. Look, you you can understand Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, Texas A&M, Florida, Georgia, JT Daniels. JT Daniels is back. They're playing great football, blah, blah, blah. Cincinnati, hey, they're undefeated, un, under, uh, underrated. Oklahoma plays a great football, Big 12 champions. Iowa State, fantastic season. Big 12 played uh, Oklahoma tough in the Big 12 championship game. As feeble, as slim, as ridiculous, as probably, you know, as as, as, as ridiculous as those arguments could be. I mean, if you really hated Ohio State and you really loved Oklahoma, Iowa State, Cincinnati, Georgia, Florida, you do have some pretty decent points that you can use to say this is the re- other than the fact that Ohio State only played five or six games, but there are some decent points that you can make that could, you know, that you could add to your argument on why the teams I just mentioned outside of Alabama and Clemson could be placed ahead of Ohio State. Coastal Carolina is just basically a fuck you. <laughs> Coastal Carolina is Debo saying, Dabo saying, fuck you to Ryan Day. You ain't shit. We're going to kick your ass. We have a better program. You know, this, that, and the other. That That's what it's all about. That's a fuck you moment right there. Now, the question is, is Ryan Day going to be able to use that to um, get Ohio State fired up and this, that, and the other? And even so, even if that's the case, does it really make a difference? I mean, do we really need to have, we really need to play that card in terms of uh, Ohio State getting ready to uh, play Clemson? Really? I mean, you're the single-handed reason why the Big Ten decided that football was going to be restarted after it was canceled. So Ohio State, you put yourself in this situation. Now you need Dabo Sweeney to get you fired up by saying that Coastal Carolina is uh, better than you and they deserve a higher ranking than you. I don't even know what Dabo says if they even ask him. I don't even know if Dabo would even go, I pick Coastal Carolina over Ohio State because I believe Coastal Carolina is a better football team. Basically what he's saying is that I think Coastal Carolina because of the number of games that they played and who they played, basically BYU, I think that they deserve a ranking higher than Ohio State. That doesn't mean that I think Ohio State is not a better football team. Or if I was a gambling man and I had to you know, bet on my life, my wife, my kids, and my mortgage, who, I, who would I pick straight up Coastal Carolina or Ohio State? I'm not saying I would go with Coastal Carolina. But based on the body of work that they did this season, the number of games that they played, I think that Coastal Carolina deserved a higher ranking than Ohio State. I think that's what Dabo would come out and say. But I still think he's saying a fuck you to Ohio State. So Georgia's Kirby Smart, but the only other coach to have Ohio State lower than six. Most of the other 59 participants had Ohio State either number one, three, or four. Oh, sorry, number two, three, four, or number five. The most popular spot with number three. So that's about it. That's about it with that one. So I'm taking a look here. Yeah. Yeah. Ohio State 
six and zero. Notre Dame. I guess also, you know, Ohio State. If there would have been somebody else, like for instance, for instance, shit. <clears throat> for instance, if there was like another really, especially for not only just Ohio State but also Notre Dame, those two. Who else are you going to put in? If you're going to say Notre Dame doesn't belong in the top four, who else are you going to put in there? Texas A&M. I mean. There's nothing egregious. There was nothing like, oh my goodness, this is just ridiculous. There wasn't that TCU-Baylor moment the first time that they had the college football playoffs where TCU blew out somebody and they fell in the rankings because the committee wanted to put in one of the big wigs to play in the college football. I think it was Ohio State who got uh, selected over TCU after TCU had blown out uh, somebody in their last game of the season who was halfway decent. So... This season, I, I don't even know, again, outside of Clemson and Alabama, who on the outside looking in is sitting there going, oh, shoot, I fucking can't believe it. What, Texas A&M? Do you really think they're better than Ohio State? Do you really think they're better than Notre Dame? Again, it's hard because we keep going back to the how many five-star recruits they have on their on their roster. And if you were going to place your, all your money on a team to win a game between Ohio State and Texas A&M or Notre Dame or Texas A&M, that the money would definitely be going to both Ohio State or Notre Dame. But I don't know. Man, you take a look at Notre Dame performances in the big games. <laughs> when you speak about the BCS game, New Year's 5 game, college football playoff game ever since 2001, they lost 41-9 to Oregon State in the Fiesta Bowl in 2001. 2006, they lost to Ohio State 34-20. to 2007, in the Sugar Bowl, they got blown out by Kansas State 41-14. to 2013, BCS title game against Alabama, they got romped 42-14. The 2016 Fiesta Bowl against Ohio State, they lost 44-28. And then in the 2018 college football semifinal, they lost 30-3 against Clemson. In each one of those games, we're not as close as the score indicated. So, again, bias. Again, what do you do? Again, how much should that play into whether Ohio State or or Notre Dame gets in? I don't know, man. This shit is so confusing. And I'm done talking about college football. Let's talk about the uh, sweet science, shall we? Play me some Jose Feliciano, please. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Mentioned before, I want to thank everybody 
listening to the podcast. Very much appreciate it. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom. Namaste. Niao. Que pasa. Bonjour. Bonsoir. Everybody listening to the podcast. The special edition, holiday edition of Wendell's World and Sports. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Now rate, review, subscribe, do all those good things so you cannot miss just one second of this wonderful, wonderful podcast. The most entertaining, the most insightful, the most informative, the most thought-provoking, the most cursed words used in any sports talk podcast that you'll ever find. Fucking Wendell's goddamn world and motherfucking sports. That's what the fuck I'm talking about. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay, boxing. Let's get into some boxing over the past two weeks. It's been strong. It's been good. It's been fantastic. Canelo Alvarez strengthened his grip on the number one pound-for-pound fighting list today. Was dominant on Saturday with the unanimous decision win over previously unbeated, undefeated champion Callum Smith. Winning the WBA, WBC, and the Ring Magazine Super Middleweight titles. The scorecards were 119, 109, 119, 109, and 117, 111. All in favor of the man from Mexico, Canelo Alvarez. He landed 43% of his punches, 57% of his power punches. Meanwhile, Mr. Smith landed only 18% of his punches and 24% of his Power punches. Man, Canelo was brilliant, man. The body shots, the combinations. He was strong. He was uh, dictating the pace. He was in charge. He was dominant. He was dominant. And you saw that early on to the point of where it was like, okay, we can see the difference between, you could even hear the sound. Listening to the uh, sound, listening to the shots, you could see the difference in power when Canelo landed and when uh, Callum Smith landed. It was a matter of when Canelo would throw even a jab. I mean, it just had that poop, that pop, the poop, the pee. And you could see Smith just kind of like, you could kind of feel that, ooh, ouch, ooh, yeah, damn. And just the way, the body language, just the way that he was fighting. I mean, yeah, kind of coward puncher or whatever, but he was more concerned, which is one of the reasons why he didn't throw too many uh, combinations to begin with, because he didn't want to leave himself open to be punched, whether it be in the ribs, the shoulders, more importantly, the jaw. I mean, he wasn't there for that that stuff. So early on, you could see that the way Canelo was dictating the pace, you could see the lack of respect that Canelo was giving Smith in terms of his power. You could see the way the the way that Canelo was dictating the pace that this was going to be a beatdown. This was either going to be a early knockout in the fourth or fifth round, or basically Canelo was going to beat him up for nine or ten rounds before the referee or before the um, corner finally said, you know, enough is enough. I thought, you know, Smith being a champion, you go out like a champion and all this kind of nonsense. For me, you don't get paid by the round. And Callum Smith still has a lot of boxing left in him. So if I'm him and I'm getting my ass whooped like I was getting my ass whooped and I don't have any avenue to go ahead and win this fight, I ain't going to knock the guy out. I couldn't have knocked out, Smith couldn't have knocked out Canelo with a baseball bat if he was swinging it and hitting him on the jaw. So without any ways of winning the fight, if I'm the trainer, if I care about Callum Smith, I'm like, hey, man, after the ninth and 10th round, this is over. I'm done. Because all you're doing is just getting beat up. And you've got plenty of other fights left in your career. You've got plenty more paydays left in your career. So I'll make the call. This isn't a situation where you quit. I'll throw in a towel. I'll take the heat. 
You can yell and scream and talk about, no, I was fine and I wanted to go out on my shield. You can get all DeAndre Wilder on me in terms of I wanted to be, you know, carried out and all this kind of bullshit that these macho bullshit fighters do when they talk about this shit. Hey, man, it's a way to make money. It's a business. Okay? A lot of these guys have white kids and other responsibilities. What good is it to take care of your children, your kinfolks, when you're dead? So your folks can sit there and be like, well, daddy was, uh, you know, daddy could have helped me out as I'm, you know, going through life and trying to learn how to be a man or a woman or whatever. I mean, would have been nice to have daddy here to kind of help me through the rough terrain, which is called life. But, you know, luckily for me and for him, he died in the rain because he went out like a champ. He went out like a soldier. So while I'm daddyless, at least I can take, uh, at least I can take praise and at least I can take comfort in knowing that he died for himself. Because he wanted to go out like a G. I mean, you know, get the fuck out of here. So, yeah, that's what referees are for. That's what your corner should be for. That's what your promoter should be for. To be like, you're done. Stop the fight. But Canelo was dominant. dominant. He never looked better. And, uh, again, the combinations, the shots to the body, uh, the forcefulness of his punches while still in control. No haymakers, no crazy shots. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And now he's a four-time division champion who's won the Ring Magazine title in three different weight classes. He's won it at 154. He's won it at 160. He's won it now at 168. And a pseudo-175 uh, belt that he has. But I'm talking about lineal champion. I'm talking about undisputed champion. He beat Sergey Kovalev, which is nice. But Kovalev wasn't the real champion of 175. I think his next goal... It should be to unify all four belts, which would put him in some rarefied air. We're speaking now about Canelo Alvarez being at a point in his career to where he's fighting for history. He's fighting amongst his place, among the greatest Mexican-born boxers in the history of that proud country in terms of, um, in terms of uh, bringing us boxers, bringing us fighters. So, you know, the, people are talking about what should he do next, and Billy Joe Saunders was the next guy, Caleb Plant was the next guy that, you know, possibly they was talking about him fighting. Um, Arturo Bernabidev was another guy at the heavy, light heavyweight division if he wanted to go ahead and once again unify that, really unify that. The biggest money fight would be Gennady Golovkin, but... You know, when Mannix asked him about fighting Golovkin, there was a smirk that came across his face like, oh, really? You're going to bring this bullshit up again? But, you know, Mannix was right. It was like, yeah, I don't want to see him fight Golovkin again. I don't want to see him fight Triple G. If he fought Triple G again, he would destroy him. Golovkin's, uh, Golovkin's 39. Alvarez is 30. Yeah, Triple G looked good in the fight on Friday night, but he was fighting a guy with absolutely no power. So he could stand there. And, and beat him and, and beat up on him. Canelo has tasted Triple G's power, and he's done quite well. And in my opinion, not that I'm uh, I don't I don't know I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I think the the older you get, while the power is the last thing to go, it does diminish. So a guy like Alvarez, who has now grown into his frame, who has now grown into the weight that he would be fighting Triple G in. I just don't think that uh, Gennady would be able to withstand that. Instead of going, remember, look, I thought that Golovkin won the first fight. I thought the second fight easily could have gone his way also. But uh, 
in, in this situation, I think it would be similar to what you saw happen to Caleb Smith in terms of it fought if Triple G fought uh, Alvarez, that it would be a one-sided beatdown, and you know it would be a nice payday for Alvarez. It would be the easiest payday. It would be the biggest payday for the easiest opponent if he had his choices of fighters. But you know, I, I he's a businessman. It's his life. It's his way of making money. Do what you got to do, you know, of course. And look, you can still fight Golovkin and, and go fight these other guys. He's 30 years old. I know he's fought, what, 57, 58 times. But he feels great. He looks great. He's got years still left in his prime unless he gets absolutely destroyed by someone we don't know about. Um, why not take an easy payday by fighting Triple G and then go ahead and continue to fight worthy opponents like Saunders and Plant and uh, Bernabidev and those type of guys. So we'll we'll see. We will we will see at the fight because the fight was in San Antonio. Errol Spence was there, and he was being interviewed by Mannix. And Spence was up there talking about, yeah, you know, uh, Bud Crawford, because that's the fight that everybody at that division, the one forty seven division, it's got to be Spence and Crawford. It's no other, no other answers. There's no, it's not, nothing else. So of course, every time, just like with Alvarez, gets asked about Triple G all the time. Same thing now with uh, Errol Spence. He's going to, and same thing with Bud Crawford. Those guys are going to get asked about each other in terms of who are you going to be fighting next. Danny Garcia was a nice little fight for Spence after coming off being almost killed in a car accident. But I mean, Danny Garcia, you know, a, a, a guy that's not a natural 147. Errol Spence is. He's big. He's a big 147. He's long. He's rangy. Great boxer. Um, it was an easy work. It was easy work for uh, Spence that night against Garcia. So, look, you know, against Bud Crawford, it would be interesting to see. But because he's such a big 147, Spence is up there talking about, yeah, I would want I want to move up to a 160 and fight Canelo Alvarez. Boy, please. Man, please. Stop. Stop. Stop with that nonsense. No one wants to hear that bullshit. None of that shit's going to happen. Do get the stuff going in terms of doing a three-fight deal with uh, Bud Crawford or a two-fight deal with the uh, option for another one, just in case it goes one and one. But stop this nonsense. You don't want no part of Canelo Alvarez, Mr. Spence. No part. Not at 160, not at 168. Hell, I wouldn't, if I don't, Errol Spence, I wouldn't even fight that man at 154. I don't even know now at 30 years old if Canelo could even get down to 154 after the way he's been weight he's been fighting at for the last couple of fights. But even then, I wouldn't want to fight if I'm Errol Spence. I wouldn't want to fight um, Galof, um, um, Alvarez. Leave that man alone. Leave that man alone. Oh, and also, both Crawford and Spence, stop chasing after Manny Pacquiao. Stop it. Stop it. Manny's going to be 42 years old. Manny is still a guy who can command a good payday for himself. I mean, he's still doing some political work over in the Philippines, and he's still fighting for a check, a big check, a nice check. He can fight guys that he could, man, he could fight for another two years and still make good dollars. Fighting guys he could beat. Two guys that he could not beat under any circumstance would be Bud Crawford and Errol Spence. But those two know that. Those two also know that the biggest name in the lower weight class concerning that is still Manny Pacquiao. So they figure I could get a huge payday 
for an easy night's work, and it can also help my resume in terms of I beat up and I put down and I worked a legend. One of the best there was in Manny Pacquiao, albeit 42 years old. But shit, how many times do we have to hear how wonderful Rocky Marciano is because he beat Joe Lewis when Joe Lewis was 38 years old? How much do we have to hear how wonderful uh, uh, um, uh, Sugar Ray uh, Robinson was when he beat up an old Hank Armstrong? How many times do we have to hear about how wonderful Larry Holmes was when he beat up an old Muhammad Ali? That's still on your resume. We don't need to go any further than, you know, the circumstances surrounding that. So Errol Spence, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, Errol Spence or Bud Crawford could sit there and talk about, hey, you know what? I beat Manny Pacquiao. I beat the great Manny Pacquiao. I sent into retirement with a beatdown of Manny Pacquiao. We don't need to go into the uh, fact that I was in my athletic prime and he was 42 years old. Uh, let's not kind of talk about that. Let's just talk about the headlining news, which is I beat a legend in Manny Pacquiao. So, you know, that, that nonsense is just, just go away with that nonsense if you're Errol Spence. Leave Canelo Alvarez alone. If you're Canelo, again, what I want to see him do eventually, go up to 175 and unify all four of those titles. And if you want to fight Triple G, fight Triple G. Go ahead and do it. Go ahead. I, I know you hate the guy, and I know you don't want to give him a payday. He's still going to get a payday. Triple G is going to get paid whether he fights you or not. And What's the difference if you're Golovkin between 15 million for three fights total, throwing out an arbitrary number? So don't 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 sit there and talk about well he's going to get more than five million for a fight. I'm just throwing out numbers in terms of to uh, strengthen my argument in terms of Golovkin not needing to fight uh, Alvarez. He could fight three fights like he did on Friday and earn eight million for each fight, which would bring it up to 24 million. Or he could go fight Triple G for $30 million and get his ass whooped. I mean, what's the difference between $6 million if you still have your health? Every time you go into that ring, regardless of who you're fighting, you're taking years off your life. Because it's just not natural for the human body to have someone punch you in the face, punch you in the chest, punch you in the ribs, punch you in the arms, punch you all over 500, 600 times in less than 40 minutes. So every time you go in there, not only are you taking your life into your hands. You also know that regardless whether you win, lose, or draw, how hard or easy the fight was, a little portion of you just left. You left that part in your ring. So your life expectancy went down the minute you step into that ring. By how much, minutes, days, years, all will tell. But you are still going to be losing something in terms of your longevity, your potential on how long you can live every time you step into that ring. So What's the what's the worth of taking five months off your life expectancy by getting drugged by Canelo Alvarez when you can take maybe two days off of your life by fighting for tomato cans and making a little bit less money? That that would be my thought if I'm not only Triple G, but also if I'm Manny Pacquiao thinking about fighting <laughs> Errol Spence and Bud Crawford and hopefully people who care about them. Jinky, Minky, what's it? What's his wife's name? Jinky, something like that. Whatever his kids, somebody, you know, Freddie Roach. Somebody says no. We we're we're not doing that. We're not doing that at all. You can go over to China. You can go up to the um, uh, Saudi Arabia. And you can have some good easy fights and make a pretty decent payday. But no, we're not going to go ahead and get our asses whooped and get seriously hurt by the elite of the elite. Not many. Not Errol Spence going up to 160. Not going to be happening. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, 
Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So where are we talking about with Alvarez, age 30? Mentioned before, he's fighting for his place in history as one of the greatest Mexican boxers of all time, right there with Eric Morales, Marco Antonio Barrera, Carlos Zarte, Juan Manuel Marquez, Ruben Oliveras, Salvador, the late, great Salvador Sanchez, the greatest of them all, Julio Cesar Chavez, Junior, uh, 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 no, I'm talking, about, <laughs> I'm talking about daddy, not his son who's a disgrace to the game of boxing and living properly. But um, I don't know if Alvarez has reached that level of popularity. And look, you know what? Sanchez's spot is always going to be cemented because of the what could have been aspect. Dying in a car crash at the age of 23, just coming off an awesome fight against Azuma Nelson. That's like Otis Redding going down and dying. I mean, the way he went out and the potential that he left and the things that he could have done if need be. We can Now, now we can speculate without seeing if we're going to be right or wrong. I mean, who knew what Salvador Sanchez was going to be? We assume that he was going to be an all-time great. He was on his way at 23 of being an all-time great. But how many times have we said that in sports in life and it just doesn't turn out that way? So him dying the way that he did because he couldn't drive the speed limit solidifies his place in terms of our speculation in how great he was going to be we can say that we'll, we'll never be proven wrong. So because of that, Salvador Sanchez and I think Sanchez and Chavez are two guys are never who are never going to be eclipsed. But with um, but with um, Alvarez, who knows? And I'm not going to go back into boxing history in terms of the Mexican boxers in the 40s and the 50s and the 30s and the 20s. I'll leave it up to the Armando Vasquez of the world to educate me on that. But I'm just talking about fighters who I saw fight and know about. You know, Eric Morales, I think that he's better than Marco Antonio Barrera. I think he's better than Juan Manuel Marquez. I think he's better than, speaking of Alvarez. And it's interesting because, as I mentioned before, I don't know if Alvarez yet has reached the level of acceptance within the Hispanic community, within the Hispanic, Hispanic boxing community, in terms of, you know, Canelo, Canelo, I still remember some of the backlash that, or not just backlash, but I, I just remember his fight against Floyd Mayweather Jr. And the fact that the Hispanic community, a whole lot of them, more than what it should be, were out there cheering for Floyd Mayweather to beat Alvarez. Because they were like, well, you know, Alvarez is nothing more than a corporate guy and he hadn't fought anybody and he's nothing more than the media hype and all this kind of nonsense. And Floyd, being the businessman that he is, horrible human being, but being the businessman that he is, catering to the Hispanic community, you know, the Hispanics gave their love, for the most part, to uh, Mayweather Jr. So I'm just interested because, you know, just like Oscar De La Hoya, who bent over backwards to try to appease the Hispanic boxing community, but yet still he was always being taken down because he was playing golf and he was doing this and he was doing that and he spoke English and this, that, and the other. And, you know, East L.A., but he wasn't like, you know, your stereotypical East L.A. Hispanic boxer, Mexican boxer. So no matter how hard he tried, no matter how many how many mariachi bands he would bring to the ring, no matter how many Mexican flags along with American flags he would bring to the ring, it always seemed like De La Hoya was always fighting a losing battle in terms of being that guy for the Mexican boxing community. 
And I just feel that Alvarez, I don't think he was, I don't think he's ever at the level of De La Hoya in terms of that. Because you got to remember, De La Hoya also had the love and affection of mostly the women. Hispanic women, white women, black women, they loved when De, when De La Hoya went in his prime, the golden boy and doing the thing. Them ladies loved Oscar De La Hoya. I mean, women turned out to watch Oscar De La Hoya fight. So that was maybe that was the reason why the machismo Mexican men didn't like De La Hoya so much, pretty boy. But um, that was the deal with him. So I don't know if there's any Mexican boxer, a Mexican-born or American-born, I don't know if anybody could reach the level of female uh, fandom as Oscar De La Hoya. But, you know, Alvarez is, uh, he's trying. He's trying. He gave that, uh, he, he understands English. He can speak English. When Mannix was interviewing him after the fight, he didn't need a interpreter. Because normally Mannix asks the question, the interpreter, uh, you know, brings it over to the fighter and the fighter, you know, answers it. But no interpreter needed for this one. He understood what Mannix was saying, but he chose to answer in in Spanish. All right. All right. I see you. I hear you. Keeping it real. Keeping it 100. All right. That's fine. You do your thing. I mean, you're not here. I mean, you're Hispanic. You're Mexican. So, you know, that's who you should be trying to appease. Don't want people be trying to appease the white folks and black folks and everything else. If they want to, you know, ride along the Alvarez train with you being who you are, you know, with the Hispanics being your uh, your, your your family, your brothers and sisters, that community, that's cool. I'll ride with you. I ain't mad at you. You know, so maybe down the road as Canelo continues to uh, be dominant, Maybe the Hispanic community will give him the love and support that I think he deserves and he's not getting. But, uh, you know, he's fighting for history right now. I think he really is. And I think when everything is all said and done, he needs that one. He either needs that one fighter other than Triple G, who I think also because of the way that he fights was also beloved a lot by the Mexican community especially when they were fighting each other, him and, and um, Triple G and Alvarez. I thought that the fandom, the Mexican fandom, the Hispanic community fandom toward Triple G was like, hmm, that's surprising. Y'all going to be uh, giving them that kind of love, huh? Okay, interesting. So I think moving forward, if Canelo really does have three or four really good prime years left in his career, that we need to find someone that's going to bring out, we need a Greg Haugen what he did for Julio Cesar Chavez, where he basically, he just insulted every Mexican who walked, uh, who'd been walking the earth and got his ass whooped for it. But we need something to bring out that Mexican fandom to rally around Canelo for real. He's got a fan base with the Hispanic community. I just thought it would be more. And I think whenever he goes, when he passes that baton, and normally bas uh, boxers pass that baton by getting their asses whooped. I think it'll be a situation to where it's got to be to another Hispanic. It's got to be to another Mexican. And that Mexican, that up-and-coming Mexican, that Ryan Garcia type of up-and-coming Mexican, when he finally takes that torch from Canelo, whether it be six, seven, eight, nine years from now, after the stellar career that Alvarez has had, and when it's really over, 
I think that's when the Mexican boxing community is going to uh, really give Canelo his props. So there it is. Canelo Alvarez still the best pound-for-pound boxer in the world. So now we're going to talk about what's happening in the heavyweight division, and we're going to be talking about Anthony Joshua. And with Anthony jo- what? What happened? What do you mean I can't talk about Joshua? What do you mean I have to? Are you serious? Come on, give me that. Give me this. Give me this here. Let me see. Whenever you talk about Anthony Joshua, you must play Sweet Caroline. All right, so you're going to try to tell me because England, the British fighter, that I have to play Sweet Caroline? Really, before I go ahead and talk about this fight with... I have to go ahead and do that. Do, can I at least, do I have to play Neil Diamond? What, Neil Diamond, do I have to play his version or can I play my own version? Will you at least give me that? If you're not, I'm not going to talk about him. I can go ahead and just talk about Georgetown and say, screw you. You're going to let me do it? You're going to let me play my version the way, the Sweet Caroline version that I want to play? Thank you. Play it, please. Could a super fight be happening soon? Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua. Can that fight be happening soon? Boxing needs it. Boxing wants it. Boxing demands it. The sports needs it. Come on now. Get it done, Bob Arum. Get it done, Eddie Hearn. Get it done. Do what you need to do. Joshua, a couple of weeks ago, looked looked solid. Looked professional. Looked uh, really good. And uh, beating uh, Kuprat Pulev, knocking him out near the end of the uh, ninth round to retain his IBF, WBO, and WBA belts at Wembley Arena on uh, a couple of Saturdays ago, knocked him down a couple of times, uh, knocked him in the th- knocked him down in the third round, knocked him down two more times. The up the overhand right that knocked him down was sensational. The last thing in anybody's mind, leave a really good lasting impression, which exactly what he did. So, come on, man. Let's get it done. It was his 24th win in 25 professional fights. Um, and it sets up a possible unification belt with Tyson Fury, who now holds the WBC belt. He took that belt after beating up on Deontay Wilder with ease back in February. So, look, everybody wants to see this fight. Joshua was up there talking about, well, you know, what Joshua said in his post-fight interview when asked about fighting Fury, 
He said he wanted to fight him without actually mentioning his name. He said it's not about the opponent, it's about the legacy and the belt. Whoever he whoever has got the belt, Fury, I want the belt, which is Fury. I'd love to compete with him. He's talking about Fury. If it's Tyson Fury, it is. Let it be Tyson Fury. It is. So, you know, without, you know, talking a bunch of trash and, you know, I'm going to whoop your ass and I'm going to send you back and I'm going to beat the brakes off you and you're garbage. And, you know, instead of going, you know, The Rock or Stone Cold or Ric Flair in a promo on him, you know, he was just basically saying, I want to fight you. Let's get it on. Um, Tyson Fury then basically went on, I don't know, was Instagram or Twitter or one of these social medias. He went on Twitter. That's right. And he said, well, there goes everyone. There you go, everyone. Anthony Joshua just shit himself. Live on television, he got asked, did he want the fight? And he went around the bushes and put his ass in the hedge. I want the fight. I want the fight next. I'll knock him out inside of three rounds. He's a big bum dosser. Can't wait to knock him out. So Tyson Fury seems to be, you know, out there talking about, I want this, I want this, I want this. Bob Arum, Fury's promoter, he tweeted, after the fight, it looks like the stage is set for the biggest heavyweight championship fight since Ali Frazier in 1971. Slow down, Bob. When Tyson Fury meets Anthony Joshua for the undisputed crown, we at top rank will start on Monday working to put that fight together. Joshua promoter Eddie Hearn also said that he wanted to make the fight. Basically, he said, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't do everything humanly possible to uh, make that fight. So basically, made a little kind of kind of with that last statement in terms of doing everything I can to make that fight possible. Now, I don't want to hear doing everything you can. Make it happen. Make it happen. Don't give me doing everything I can. That gives you a little leeway to say, oh, well, I did everything I could, but, you know, it just didn't happen. No, no, no. Get it done. Get it done. The fight would be the biggest fight in British boxing history. You would have to have it at Wembley Stadium. You would have to. This fight isn't for Vegas. This fight isn't for Texas Stadium. This fight isn't for... Madison Square Garden. This fight, it, no, no, no. This fight is, that's not, this fight shouldn't be on American soil. The first fight, the second fight, to really cash in on the payday, and even the third fight, now we're talking about having it at Texas Stadium, having it at Allegiant Stadium over in uh, Vegas, um, having it at one of them venues. Now we're talking. Let's throw in a trilogy here and let's get it done. But the first fight, it should be, it's got to be over in British. It's got to be over in England. It's got to be over in Wembley Stadium. The only thing is, how long can we wait? Because if you want it over at Wembley, and if you want 90,000 people in the stadium to watch the biggest fight in boxing, British boxing heavyweight history, maybe in British boxing period, you don't want to have it with any remnants of a pandemic. I don't want it to where we've got the virus under control enough to where we can put it, we can put 20,000 people or 40,000 people or 60,000 people. No. This fight, if it happens, this fight deserves 90,000 people. And if that means we have to wait till, damn, if that means we have to wait till summer, July to get this done, I would rather have, hmm, I would rather have, yeah, I guess I would say that. I would rather have the fight take place in July in front of 90,000 people than take place in April in front of 30,000. I just would. And yeah, I, I know things can go wrong. And it's boxing, it's almost like 
Hurry up. Let's get the sign. Let's get it done before something comes up. Injury, bullshit. Something comes up to where it's postponed. After all, this is boxing. Let's just hurry up and get it done. I know this is boxing, and the sooner the better. But man, this fight deserves, like, all the panache, all the pizzazz, everything that would come with a Fury-Joshua fight. It would be great. It would be awesome. Ali Frazier? Nah. I'm thinking somewhere around Holyfield Tyson too, in terms of the in terms of the fever, the the, the, the the fervor of that fight wanting to happen. You know, Tyson had just come off getting his ass kicked by Holyfield. The second fight was absolutely insane in terms of the build up, in terms of the anticipation. You know, any fight that Lennox Lewis was in, because he never really captured the American public, that wouldn't have been that big of a deal. So him fighting Holyfield was no big deal. They fought like, what, two or three times or some nonsense like that. But it was never really a big deal. I mean, anything Ali was in, especially when Bob Aaron is talking about the biggest fight since Ali Frazier, Ali Foreman really wasn't that big of a deal because many people, a lot of people, most people, thought that Foreman, who at the time looked completely unbeatable, was going to beat the living crap out of Ali, who looked like a fading fighter at, at age 32, coming off a loss, having his jaw broken against Ken Norton. So... That buildup really wasn't, you know, super hyped. I mean, anything with Ali is going to be pushed to the to the hilt. But, you know, compared to some of his other fights, because many people thought that Ali at the time was a diminished fighter and really didn't have a chance against a 25-year-old monster like George Foreman, the buildup really wasn't that big. Really wasn't that big for Ali Frazier to fight in Manila. Because at the time, Ali was the champ. Foreman looked like that he was on his last legs. And one of the reasons why Ali agreed to fight Foreman in Manila for the third time was because of, I think he was going to get like a 3 or $5 million paycheck at the time in 1975 was considered, 74, 75 was considered huge. So it was like, hey, you know, I can go over there. I'll beat, I'll beat Frazier in seven and eight rounds. Nice little vacation. Nice little way for me to get away from my wife, Veronica, because I was cheating on her with a couple of other chicks. And I can, you know, go over to the Philippines, have some fun, uh, knock this guy out, and collect $5 million. Nothing nothing wrong with that. Little did Ali know that Frazier was willing to go over there and die in the ring to beat up Ali for all of those things that he caused him. And Ali thought that the psychological games, calling him a gorilla and all those type of things, would diminish Frazier's opportunity, which instead only enhanced him. So it kind of backfired. But going into that fight, it really wasn't a big deal. Holmes versus Ali was sort of kind of a big deal because we're talking about Ali's return from retirement, this fight against this fight against Spinks. Uh, the second fight, the first fight, no one gave a damn about until he lost to a guy who had only fought eight professional fights that no one even heard of in Leon Spinks outside of winning a gold medal in the 76 Olympics. But uh, the second fight down at the Superdome, that was a big deal. So there have been some... Big fights outside of Frazier Ali 71. That crossed all boundaries of how important that fight was. Ali Frazier 71 was on the same level as, you know, Jack Johnson versus Jim Jeffries. Basically, you know, the fight for America, July 4th, 1910, the Great White Hope. That fight was Ali Frazier. That fight was right up there with Lewis versus Schmeling the second time they fought in, in, uh, in Yankee Stadium in 1938. Uh, when, you know, you were, the, the world was at war or was going to go at war and Lewis's victory over Schmeling 
meant that the uh, propaganda being being um, shown by Adolf Hitler was nothing more than bullshit. I mean, when you're speaking about um, uh, Jews in the concentration camp finding strength and hope and reason to live once they found out that Joe Lewis beat Max Schmeling and went around in such devastating fashion, giving them the encouragement to live while being in a concentration camp, and you're going to have Ali Frazier be somewhere along that level? Yeah, little hyperbole to say that Anthony Joshua Tyson Fury is going to be anywhere close to that. But, you know, hey, you sell tickets, just a way to get things started. Get starting a way to um, basically get the public frosting at the frothing at the mouth to go ahead and make this happen. So, again, boxing needs it. Boxing wants it. Boxing's got to have it. Now, of course, this is boxing. So, what are the chances where everything, I mean, Tyson Fury is coming off a devastating performance. Joshua coming off a devastating performance. The the uh, appetite for this is, you know, good and plenty. They're starving for this fight to happen. This is boxing. What's the chances of this happening within the next four to six months? Slim to none. A, because it's boxing. And B, because there's some obstacles in the way. Um, we have DeAndre, DeAndre Wilder, who's suing Tyson Fury because there was supposed to be a third fight between Fury and and Deontay Wilder, but because of COVID, that fight was postponed or canceled or whatever you want to say. And Fury is like, yeah, you know what? Changed my mind. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to uh, look for a bigger, greener pastures. And Wilder's like, well, no, 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 wait a minute now. I've got one more mega payday left in me, and you're that guy that's going to give me that mega payday. So my age is not going to allow me to wait around for two or three years and wait for you and Joshua to finish your business. And that also is going to depreciate the amount of money that I can make. So, no, we're going to go ahead and we're going to uh, fight each other before you think about fighting Anthony Joshua. So that shit is going to be wrapped up in the courts and everything. And then on Joshua's side, you have the situation where you're going to have, you're supposed to be fighting a mandatory uh, fight against Alexander Usek. And Usek has no intention of stepping aside to let Fury and Joshua happen. Again, Usek is 33 years old, 19 fights. He needs a big payday. And if you go ahead and step aside, sure, you could go ahead and buy him out and say, hey, look, you know, here's X amount of millions of dollars for you to uh, say, you know what, go ahead, Anthony, do your thing with Tyson and I'll be waiting for you when you come back. But at 33 years old, how much money are you going to give me to have me be, you know, to have me in a good place when in all actuality, you guys are going to be fighting another two or three times? And again, I'm 33 years old, and I want that belt. So there's some obstacles that are going to be placed in front of this fight to happen. Again, the sport of boxing needs this fight to happen within the next six to nine months. Please, fellas, make it happen. Make it happen!
Wendell's World in Sports. Welcome back, Wendell's World in Sports, the final segment. We are riding into the final segment. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Hold on, because it's time for me to talk about my Georgetown Hoyas here on Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with me, us. So many things to talk about concerning my Georgetown Hoyas. Now, why am I playing Cool in the Gang Celebration Good Times? Number one, I ran out of Christmas music to play. And number two, I said, you know what? What's the best way to bring in my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions when speaking about the Georgetown Hoyas after the news on Monday? What is the best way I can describe it? What's the best thing to get me riled up and ready to go? No, it's not Sunday's 94-83 loss to St. John's at St. John's. Javon Blair led the Hoyas with 25 points. Jamarco Pickett was terrible, 0 for 7 in the first half, 2 for 12 overall, even though I understood why he had to be on the court because of the 11 rebounds, senior influence had to do that, understood. Donald Carey finished with 19 points, only 5 after halftime, and none in the final 10 minutes, goddamn. Dante Harris, cute as Wahop, couldn't build on last uh, performance against St. John's. Dante understood. Cutest, somewhat understood. Dante Harris is not going to score 24 points. Dante Harris is not going to have the type of game he had the first time against St. John's every single game. There's going to be games where he's going to play well. And because he's a freshman and because he's not a five-star recruit and because he's not an NBA lottery pick, he's going to have games on the road first time his freshman year like he did against St. John's where he only had five points and four turnovers in 33 minutes and uh, took, a, took a couple of some uh, bad shots. Wahab fouled out with 4.43 left to play, finished with three field goals, six rebounds in 24 minutes. Wahab, foul trouble is always going to plague this guy this season, which is going to limit his minutes. I was happy that Timothy Eagle Hefe and Malcolm Wilson got into the game. Now I know why Malcolm Wilson doesn't play, but, you know, he's bouncy, he's stringy, he's uh, got a good first leap, um, needs to put on some weight. Don't know if he ever is going to have to frame to put on any type of weight. Ego Hefe wasn't as bad as, uh, in fact, he was all right. I'm not going to say that. He, there was nothing bad in this game. He just really didn't get enough minutes to, you know, either way, good or bad, uh, show us. QDA Belay is still a complete waste of time. TJ Berger's impact on the game was null, maybe a negative because defense needs some improvement there and didn't get an opportunity to shoot the ball, didn't get an opportunity to really create so the impact that he had in the first game against St. John's wasn't there in the second game. And look, again, Kobe Clark is still in the boot. Hopefully he'll play on Wednesday against Seton Hall. Um, I mean, we are what we are. No word yet on Jalen Harris, who took a leave of absence. Hopefully everything is all right with him and his family. So nothing there. I mean, you know, out of this, you know, it's nothing horrific or anything like that. Hopefully not with uh, Jalen Harris, but... It opens up some playing time for Berger. We'll see what he can do in his second road game. We'll see if he can get a little bit more than eight minutes. I would like to see him around the 12 to 15 mark. But, you know, we'll see. Teton Hall is a pretty good team. I'm quite sure that they'll beat us on the road. Our record right now is, what, three and three and one and two in the Big East. So, you know, that's fine. That's wonderful. Again, you know. But I'm not I'm not even concerned about that. I don't care about that. I am this, this season for me, has become a blessing. Not Brian blessing, but a blessing. Because now, I have the opportunity to watch a game and not get upset and not yell at the screen and not pound my fist on my sofa 
and not, you know, let out big sides of, oh, come on, man. None of that kind of stuff. You'll never, you'll never hear my voice reach this height right here. I'm going to keep it down right here throughout the whole game level. Never race to the aggravation level of where I talk right here. Bringing it down back to right here. Because I don't care if we go 3-22 and this year. I don't care. We can lose each game by 100 points. I don't care. The news on Monday. Oh, man. Celebrate good times. Come on. Just awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. The biggest and most important news in the Patrick Ewing coaching era so far, Georgetown. Georgetown signed its highest-ranked recruit in six years following the commitment of 6'3", 6'4", guard Aminu Muhammad on Monday. My favorite Muhammad outside of Ali. A senior from Springfield, Missouri, by way of Washington, D.C., Muhammad selected Georgetown over Georgia. Really came down to Georgia and Georgetown, Indiana, Texas, DePaul, whatever. Just, you know, fill out the, uh, get get the orange slices and the participation trophies. But uh, he averaged 16.5 points per game as a junior. He's ranked number 16 nationally by ESPN.com. In every situation in terms of recruiting, he's in the top 15, 16. Five-star recruits by anybody who's taking a look at him. It's the highest-ranked Georgetown recruit to have signed with the squad since Isaac Copeland did in 2014 out of Raleigh, North Carolina. That was the year they had Copeland, uh, LJ Peak. Uh, oh, the kid from um, the kid who played with uh, Jamil Okafor over in Chicago, whose name I can't remember. He left and went to Oregon. Six nine guy, do everything guard. Not that much athleticism, but a good glue guy. Name I forgot. I'll think about it like twenty minutes later. But it was him, Peak Copeland, Trey Campbell, and I believe there was somebody else. But uh, yeah, that was the that was supposed to be the recruiting class that was going to a save JT 3s job. And bring and B bring Georgetown up to the next level. I remember the good old days when everybody was whining and complaining about how we would fizzle in NCAA tournaments. Now I think that the uh, District of Columbia would give the Georgetown Hoyas a parade down Constitution Boulevard if they just made it to the NCAA tournament. So how have expectations and times have changed in a matter of six or seven years? But yeah, man, it's it's there. It's there. He's the third highest, speaking of, of Aminu, he's the third highest prospect to commit to Georgetown since the ESPN recruiting database started in 2007. Austin Freeman out of DeMatha was number seven. That was the year that they got Austin Freeman and Chris Wright, who decommitted from NC State. And that was the year that Georgetown made it to the Final Four where they lost to um, Ohio State. And then again, Copeland in 2014. They also got Greg Monroe, who was some in, the, in some publications was ranked as high as number one, you know, early on in his senior year. Then he dipped a little bit, and I don't know what he finished as, but uh, that was another high recruit high recruit that uh, has gone to Georgetown since. So recruiting 24-7 has a 2021 class, ranked number six nationally. <laughs> Celebrate good times, come on. And number two in the Big East. <laughs> We're going to have a good time tonight. Celebrate. It's all right. Yeah, yeah. The 2021 class now has Muhammad, Tyler Beard, Jagan Bigginsley out of uh, Ohio, Ryan Mutombo, son of Dikembe Mutombo, and Jordan Riley, the best athlete, I think, that has been around for Georgetown. 
coming around for Georgetown probably in a long, long time. I'm thinking maybe since Jabril Trowbrick was uh, playing uh, for the school years ago. So, yeah, we've got a nice, nice combination. I think when everything is all said and done, we have Muhammad, who's going to be number five with a bullet. That's kind of written in cement. Matambo, number as a top 100 guy, he's only going to go up. So he's ranked 80th nationally. I wouldn't be surprised if he moved up maybe into the 60s. Um, he's a solid four-star recruit. Jordan Riley is an under-the-radar type of recruit. Many people, Kansas, Virginians, and others, were recruiting. He's going to be a guy with the possibility to go from a three-star to a four-star. Four um, Tyler Beard is a guy who played basketball, high school basketball, at a very prestigious high school basketball program. Now he's down at Hartgrave. Uh, playing post-high school basketball. He'll be eligible to play. And Bigley is a guy who's uh, going to be able to fill Jamarco Pickett's role. Really, out of all of those guys, Bigley is the guy that's probably not going to be seeing significant minutes his freshman year. But Muhammad's going to start. Uh, Ryan Matambo's going to get time. Riley's going to get some time. Beard's going to be a player who's going to get some minutes. So this is awesome, man. Now Ewing has the type of squad going into the 2021 22 season that's going to resemble more of the teams that he played for and also resemble more of the teams that John Thompson Jr., the great Tom John, the great John Thompson, the legendary John Thompson, the Hall of Famer John Thompson, the guy who has his name on the court at Georgetown, John Thompson, one of the most influential coaches of the last 25, 30 years, John Thompson Jr. Ewing is going to be able to play like that coach who he played for back in the 80s when Georgetown was doing their thing, which was Pressure, high pressure, pressing, and using a whole lot of players. Because if you take a look at the squad moving forward for the 2021-22 season, the projected starting five this season, I don't care about. The projected starting, I'm already speaking about next season's uh, basketball team, seven games or two this season. I don't give a damn about this one. So the projected starting five for next season, you got Dante Harris, you got Muhammad, you got Don Carey, you got Wahab and I don't know. You might have Sibley. You might have Clark. I don't know. Depends upon how this season goes, how much of uh, improvement progress that Sibley makes, how much strength he puts, how much time he puts into the weight room. He's never going to be bulky. He's never going to be that guy that's going to have the Popeye muscles or have that beautiful physique just due to this frame. But if he can put on some weight enough to uh, take over the role that Jamarco Pickett has as a you know, college power forward, with the skills to go out on the perimeter and shoot, then that's all we can hope for. So that could be a starting five right there. And then off the bench, you're going to have guys like Ego Hefe or Mutombo and Beard and Clark and Berger and Riley. And oh my goodness gracious, you're going to be looking at so many different types of different lineups. And with the season next year, we're going to have the opportunity to see these guys play in Kenner League. Hopefully, if we can get this virus under control, Kenner League is going to be back in action, and you're going to have the advantage, Georgetown, just like every other college basketball program, to have practice start on time and to get the amount of practices that you need. So this is this is awesome, man. This, this Muhammad, I can't underscore how important this is. He has the ability to go down in Georgetown lore as one of those guys, as one of the most important players in Georgetown history. He could be right up there with the Patrick Ewings, the Allen Iversons, the Jeff Greens, the Reggie Williams in terms of the impact that it had on Georgetown basketball as a whole. 
Patrick Ewing, everybody says, is that guy, is the most influential, is the most impactful, is the most important player in Georgetown history, without a shadow of a doubt. That was the guy, the number one ranked player in the country, North Carolina, UCLA at the time, was all after him. The next Bill Russell, all of these things. This was a guy who said, you know what? Instead of going to those blue bloods, I'm going to be going to a school like Georgetown. And it took Georgetown from basically being a school in the Northeast section. It created the Big East. It brought prominence to the Big East. The Big East isn't what it is today. If it's not for Patrick Ewing going to Georgetown, it brought that type of exposure. It brought that type of impact, not just to Georgetown basketball, but basketball on the East Coast, the Northeast Quarter in general. When you're speaking about Philly and you're speaking about New York and you're speaking about D.C. and you're speaking about Baltimore and you're thinking about Boston and all of that, all of those I-95 type schools, Catholic schools in that area where Dave Gavitt banded together and formed the Big East, the linchpin, the foundation was set by Patrick Ewing and elevated Georgetown to a national program and elevated that school to winning a national championship by Ewing's junior year. So yes, the most important player of that era is Patrick Ewing. It elevated John Thompson. It elevated the Big East. It elevated St. John's. It elevated Rolly Massimino. It elevated Luke Connorsucker. It elevated uh, all of those guys. So Ewing's impact, of course. Allen Iverson basically saved Georgetown basketball because Georgetown was a little bit in a lull during that time. And George and Allen Iverson basically added a few more years of substance and importance to John Thompson. Because a few years after Allen Iverson left, John Thompson retired. So Allen Iverson represented the last really great team that John Thompson had as a coach at Georgetown when you had him, Victor Page, poor Victor Page, him, Victor Page, um, Othella Harrington, um, uh, oh, Jerome Williams, that group. That was the last really great Georgetown basketball team under the uh, John Thompson uh, coaching era. And, um, you know, basically Iverson, the last number one draft pick that went to Georgetown, the last guard that had been selected by the pros that went to Georgetown and just brought a whole new energy to a program that was teetering on relevance in, in the Blue Blood neighborhood. He brought Georgetown back right after he was that bridge. He was that bridge between, uh, I mean, he was the, the guy between, after Matambo and, and, and Mourning. Remember, many people remember that Twin Tower situation with Matumbo and Mourning, while both of those guys were great, as a team with them working together, the, the, success, the success didn't equal, for instance, the 1987 team, Reggie Miller, Reggie Miller, Reggie Williams in the Miracles. Because basketball at that time, even then, was changing. And it was like, you can't have... Matambo in morning, two seven footers. Even though Alonzo was six ten, um, Dikembe was is was a legit seven footer. But you can't have two centers on the court at the same time. But you know Thompson, being old school, was like, "No, nah, I'm good. I'm good with that." But you know that group never made any significant uh, impact within the NCAA tournament and such. So Iverson was that guy. Led uh, Georgetown to the Sweet Sixteen his freshman season. Lost to uh, North Carolina with uh, Rasheed Wallace. And then the second year, lost in the Elite Eight to um, uh, Massachusetts, whose coach I'm not going to mention. So you have guys like him. You have guys like Ewing. Jeff Green was another guy that was hugely important 
for Georgetown. I mean, he was the guy that was the foundation for Star, the best player for getting Georgetown back to the Final Four, putting them back into relevance. Him, Roy Hibbert, um, Jonathan Wallace, that squad, Daryl Owens, that squad, that um, uh, Dewan Summers, that was the squad that got to the uh, 2007 NCAA Final Four. That was the squad that won the Big East. That was the squad that won the Big East tournament, beating Pittsburgh. Jeff Green, who originally thought about going to Maryland or was heavily recruited to go to Maryland, who was heavily thought of to go to Maryland, changed his decision and to go to Georgetown late. And boy, what a godsend that was, because that was also coming off the Craig Esserich years, where at the end they were 13 and 15 and falling into real irrelevance. And uh, they hired uh, Thompson's son, JT3, and they let Esserich go and the build to basically 2007 started with the recruitment of Jeff Green, even though Esserick was recruiting him. JT3, you know, took the baton, followed it, and, uh, you know, and, and went ahead and did that. So uh, those are like the important role player. Reggie Williams was another guy who was important. He was the number one player out of Dunbar in Baltimore. Him, David Wingate. Bugsy Bogues at the time had the best, some considered him the great Reggie Lewis. That was considered at one time the greatest high school basketball team in the history of high school basketball. Interesting. I don't know how they came up with that. But, you know, they, they went down. Bob Wade was the coach of that team out there in Baltimore. But Williams was a number one high school basketball player with a bullet. He in 83, 82, something like that. I don't know. 83, 84. I don't know. But basically, he decided to uh, commit to Georgetown. And, you know, during that time, he made the uh, he won a championship made it to the final game where, you know, they lost the game to Villanova because half the team was all was all cracked up on, on, on smoking on crack. And then in the eighty seven, you know, one of the most underrated, most enjoyable teams in the recent Georgetown history, Reggie Williams and the Miracles. That team had Williams who was a all American and became the number three pick for the Denver Nuggets in the eighty seven NBA draft. But you had that team, an undersized power forward in Perry McDonald, Boyne Bryant Mark Tillman, who were both freshmen at that time. Jonathan Edwards, I believe, was on that team. That, that's when Thompson, uh, Big John, was had a nice little pipeline in terms of being, being recruits from Louisiana up to up to uh, D.C. Dwayne Bryant was from Louisiana. Perry McDonald was from Louisiana. Uh, I think David Edwards for a short time. He might have been from Louisiana or Texas. I forgot. But there were some really good players that came through that Louisiana pipeline. Jonathan Edwards was from Louisiana. So that team and from that recruiting base helped Georgetown a lot during that time. But all of this just ties into Aminu could be that guy. The 2021 class could be that class that brings Georgetown back to national prominence. And Aminu is just that guy in terms of bringing this class from potentially being Sweet 16, being NCAA 32, to potentially two, three years down the road, being real squads to compete for national championships. And one thing that we've seen, and I don't know how much of an impact that the G League is going to have. I don't know how much of an impact where you can go ahead and market your wares and your likes in college now, I don't know how much of an impact that's going to be, but you see now in college basketball, teams, especially this year, who are really good and who are ranked, they're not the Blue Bloods, 
and they're teams who have seniors and juniors and players who weren't five-star recruits, players who, when they came in their freshman year, weren't one-and-done, so they're going to be lottery picks. If you take a look at Gonzaga, the number one ranked team with a bullet, I mean, they are really good. Jalen Shrugs just takes them up another level, but that team is loaded with veteran, really good college basketball players. You take a look at Iowa with Luke Garza, who's not going to sniff the NBA in terms of having any type of role or importance because he's too plodding and he's too slow. But for a big man in college basketball, he's the <laughs> player of the year, or he's the preseason player of the year. And that squad in Iowa is uh, very heavily demanded upon upperclassmen. You take a look at Houston. You take a look at these other schools who I mentioned before. Those teams are doing really well, and they're doing it with a lot of upperclassmen who, again, didn't come in as four- and five-star recruits. Well, you take a look at a team like Kentucky, who's struggling at one and five. You take a look at a team like Duke, who's good, but they're not the Duke of old or the Duke of Earl. I couldn't help it. I had to say it. But, you know, you take a look at some of the Blue Bloods, Kentucky, um, Duke, North Carolina, looks like they're going to be having a pretty good year. they got a nice little freshman backcourt, R.J. Davis. Should have been going to Georgetown. It came down between Georgetown and um, North Carolina, who swooped in at the 11th hour, and he decided to go to uh, North Carolina. But that's okay. That's okay. That's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm, 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 I'm fine with that. So <clears throat> my point is, is that, look, I'm happy. I'm giddy this season. Again, it's all about the development. Kobe Clark is a four-year basketball player. Jabari Sibley is a four-year basketball player. T.J. Berger is a four-year basketball player. Dante Harris is a four-year basketball player. These guys are not going to be guys who are going to be looking to... These guys aren't talented enough, aren't highly thought of enough. Fuck it. They just ain't good enough to be talking about when they're going to declare for the NBA draft either after their sophomore or junior year. There is nothing, nothing... Nothing, as far as potential-wise, that's going to have Colin Holloway to forgo his junior season so he can become a first-round pick. There is nothing, as far as Dante Harris, which is going to have him declare for the draft after his sophomore or junior years. Nothing. <laughs> T.J. Berger, great shooter. There is nothing about T.J. Berger, which is going to have me scared about him declaring for the NBA draft after his sophomore or junior years. These are four-year players. And the way things are going, and if you have the top players now starting to decide that they're going to go to the G League, or if the NBA decides that they're going to have players be able to come straight from high school to the NBA, it's going to be more imperative than ever to recruit guys who are college basketball players, develop them within their system, and then you can get yourself a four or five. Not all, not all four or five-star recruits are one-and-dones. Not all top 15, 20 players are one-and-dones. Aminu is not a one-and-done player. As great as he is, as important as he is, I can see him as a sophomore, junior, leaving early and being a viable option in the NBA first round if he reaches his potential. But he is not a one-and-done, I'm going to stay here for six months, not take any classes, who cares about the education and, and bounce. He's not that type of guy. So he's someone that you can build around not just where it has to be all or nothing for one year because from this class you think that these four guys are going to be leaving because they're all going to be selected in the lottery or they're all projected to be in the lottery. No, you can build around these guys. And it's it's just awesome. It's just absolutely awesome and it's absolutely fantastic. 
This has been the longest podcast I have ever had, and it's been the most enjoyable. I've loved every single moment of it. And again, I break it into parts, so you don't have to listen to all of it. If you do, get a life. But if you don't, much enjoy. Uh, I did it. This was a podcast for me. So, uh, whoo, the NBA games are about to be starting, and uh, the NBA season is here. And uh, I can't wait. It's going to be enjoyable. I'm going to get my free week of the NBA preview, NBA League Pass, which I'm going to be able to watch my Washington Wizards, Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal and Davis Bertans and the rookie that we have out of uh, Israel. So I'm going to get an opportunity to see them play two or three times before the access is over, before the preview week is over. So I'm excited about that. So again, I want to thank everybody for listening to the podcast. I want to thank everybody for supporting the podcast. I want to thank everybody for being good folks. Special dedications again going to all the wonderful people in Richardson, Texas, and the National Capital City of Delhi, and Pompalona, and Queensland, and New South Wales, and Poland, and the Netherlands, and Thailand, and Sri Lanka, and Nepal, and Vegas, and Atlanta, and San Francisco, and Vancouver. Love you guys, especially Vancouver. Woo! Man, can y'all like kind of like, you know, kind of lower your cost of living so I can like retire there and like be a resident of the most beautiful city in North America? I guess I can, huh? I mean, I'm going to need a lot more rates and reviews and uh, five stars for me to get to that, to get to that place. But a man can dream. A man can dream. I'm going to leave you with the greatest Christmas song of them all. Donny Hathaway. This Christmas. My favorite. I can sing that song in... April, May, June, July. It doesn't bother me, man. Summertime, I'm up there saying, then this Christmas will be, I don't care. Doesn't matter to me, man. A good song is a good song. So, Merry Christmas. Be safe. Be all right. Be good to each other. Love, peace, happiness. Donnie, if you would, please.
this Christmas And as we trim the tree How much fun it's gonna be together This Christmas The fireside's blazing bright We're caroling through the night And this Christmas Will be a very special Christmas Merry Christmas.